Welcome to the first ever episode 12 of Fintech Insider. We're not in level 39 this week, we're in Berlin, but we miss you level 39, the home of fintech. We've got a great show coming up for you this week, but first I wanted to take a moment to thank you guys. We've been downloaded in over 90 countries, and we briefly hit number one in the iTunes category of business for podcasts. That's thanks to you guys. You guys rock. Thank you so much, but do get in touch on at Fintech Insiders. Let us know your thoughts. This week... We're going to talk a little bit about the news, uh, as ever, as relates to all things Berlin. We're also going to talk to Solaris Bank. We're going to talk to the hottest uh, challenger bank around, N26, and OptioPay. So without further ado, let's drop into some thoughts from our recent trip to Berlin. So here we are in Berlin, and uh, we thought we'd give you a couple of reflections of our time in Berlin. We've met some very interesting people over the last couple of days and had a great time. And of course, now we're here with the guys from Solaris. So we've got Philip, Marco, and uh, Janine. Uh, guys, say hello. Hello, guys. Thanks for having us. <laughs> so Philip, just so everybody knows your voice. Hi, I'm Philip. Marco. This is Marco. Janine. Guys, welcome, and thank you for having us in Berlin in your offices that we're sitting in right now. We've had a very interesting couple of days. Um, I want to throw it open to um, to Chris, David, and Jason first and foremost. What have been your reflections? We've met a whole bunch of interesting people in the last sort of 24 hours and got a bit of a hangover, not going to lie. There's a lot of caffeine going on right now. Some of you have a hangover, Simon. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Whereas- you, were, you were kind of smart enough to turn in earlier, weren't you, Chris? I have to say, but, um, but no, like Berlin. Beautiful place. I can kind of see why there are such a kind of a flurry of startups over here in terms of sort of doing it. You know, with uh, the guys that we met yesterday, you, you'll get to hear the interviews a little bit later in the show. But um, really impressed, you know, really, uh, really sort of loving the, the place. And actually, there was a few things that we sort of found particularly surprising, wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, we spoke to OptioPay, Mambu, Solaris, N26. I think the main reflection from me is uh, is how international the teams are. I guess I was expecting a, a lot more well, Germans in, in Berlin fintech startups. Germans in Germany, that would be yeah. sensible, wouldn't Crazy. it? Crazy. But actually the fact that the majority of uh, well, the startups we spoke to yesterday had 16 to 19 different nationalities and actually English was the sort of de facto office language which was just something that surprised me. Which, from a talent acquisition standpoint, is huge. When you've already got an amazing developer community here, you've got an amazing art community. It's the kind of city that's going to draw people where they're going to want to live here. You're going to have a great lifestyle. You're going to be able to afford to live here. And you probably don't have to learn another language right away to get here. But then when you do, you'll integrate better and you know everybody will get to know you and you'll learn the jokes they were all making about you behind your backs, which is quite nice. <laughs> it's also a cool cultural city. And it's a living museum of the 20th century, the cold war east west and at the same time because that all that's gone it makes it fascinating to be here because you see all that around you i mean Mar- marco for you know and why are you guys here in terms of what brings you to berlin well i'm actually coming from this place i'm um, from uh, i'm one of the few people here in our team who are actually from berlin right this is um as, as you said we are very international but we are we are those guys from germany are not coming from berlin either so they're coming from from hamburg we have, we have guys from Mainz like philip and so on and so forth. So, uh, people are from all over the place. I'm here because I've been living in, in exile for the last 17 years. I was <laughs> two years in Argentina, eight years in Poland, and seven years in Bavaria. And this is, um, this is for me as a, as a, as a guy from, from this region is it was very nice to come back to Berlin to, to the place where I wanted to be. So when you came back, had it changed much? Pardon me? When you came back, had it changed much? 
Well, no, I was living for the last seven years already here, yeah. and then I was uh, was all the time uh, back here in Berlin. So I I couldn't really see the big changes because I was all the time here already. So, but but as you guys said, um, I think it's it's really important to see what the city stands for now and and what it offers. And exactly the points you guys make made it's it's super international, a huge developer com um, community, um, very artsy, affordable to live here. So it has a lot of advantages um, in general, very high quality of living, but also especially if you look on the startup side to to found something here and just to get to know a lot of interesting people. That's that what makes Berlin really special, actually. Yeah, there's a really sort of interesting mix, isn't it, from the sort of places that we go and uh, and an amazing sense of humor as well. We we saw F Donald Trump on the Berlin Wall, which was a kind of entertaining right there. You know, Lovely so the irony of that. Did, yeah, yeah, he he Let's should build come, the wall. Exactly, <laughs> come here, one. see what happened. Didn't work out, Donald. Isn't really going to solve you know the problem. amazing thing is there's no Mexicans here. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it did work then. Uh. <laughs> but it's it's been great. So yeah, we really enjoyed the uh, really enjoyed in terms of what we've seen. But um, maybe let's get on with the news. Yeah, I think it's time for the news. So dropping into the news, first article up, David. Um, you spotted that the Economist had a headline saying they're taking it to eleven, which felt a bit like gimmick infringement. It, yeah, well, you know, there's a there's a serious nature to this that they get into after maybe a, a paragraph of basically doing what we do a lot, which is explaining what Spinal Tap actually is. But um, yeah, it was a kind of an interesting one that they felt that the uh, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, and the uh, ECB has basically dialed up monetary policy to 11, which is kind of an amazing thing to do. And uh, lots of kind of scary graphs with this one in terms of actually how they're doing it. But um, I just kind of found it, uh, like, say, jump, jumping on the bandwagon slightly here, economists, you know, yeah. get your own jokes. Get your own jokes. But also the story could have been, like, really powerful in its own right. I mean, central banks are moving into unprecedented territory. They are doing things that are, like, beyond taking steroids. They're taking steroids and human growth hormone and, like, everything else they can pump into the body of the economy to try and get the thing to grow. It's because all they've tried is failing. You know, QE has just gone as far as it can go. Interest rate policy has gone as far as it can go. So they're trying to work out what else to do. Well, they, they were saying this. It's as part of this. They were looking at so they, since the ECB actually announced its bond buying program in, in March, actually the corporate bonds have actually fallen by over half. So it's it's kind of terrifying uh, undertones to what started mm. started as quite a lighthearted uh, little article in the Economist. <laughs> It really is, and it was a nice little funnel. Let's take it to 12. Well, okay. well very soon it's going to be, I think, <laughs> a flat lining at zero, isn't it? But, uh... So that was um, a nice little bit of gimmick infringement. But uh, moving moving quickly on, we've noticed that the um, the Guardian noticed, Chris, that uh, global banking shares have taken a dive, especially Deutsche Bank, um, after a recent 14, uh, is it 14 billion US dollar fine. That's a that's a significant fine, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's being touted that they'll get the 14 billion dollar fine. It's not actually in there yet, but equally, there's a lot of issues that Deutsche Bank are facing and have faced over the past eight years. They kind of walked away from the crisis, and unlike West LB and Commerce Bank, which are two banks that failed in Germany, they sort of were smiling, saying, look, we survived, and yet their share price has gone from 100 euros to just 10 in eight years, and it's tanking. Um, and now, you know, basically, Deutsche Bank is equivalent of three... Of, Three pay, sorry, three Deutsche Banks is the equivalent of one PayPal in market capitalization, or it's equivalent of four Deutsche Banks is the equivalent of one Ant Financial. It really sort of gives an indictment as to how serious it is. So they're trying to sort out the issues, and to a large extent, 
they're being mentioned now in the same breath as Lehman's, which is really starting to get concerning because it is related to the previous story about taking to 11. You know, if the monetary policy, interest rate policy, convertible bonds, etc., is all failing, what can you do? And you can't get a bailout because under European ECB agreements, um, the Financial Stability Fund for Europe would have to be approached to get a bailout for Deutsche Bank. And yet the German government is trying to work out what, you know, how to bail them out. One of the, the rumours is merge them with Commerce Bank. I mean, do you guys think that that would happen? You know, it's Seems untenable. No, but there was there was a talk about that just a couple of weeks ago. There was I don't know whether it was just a rumor, but there were talks about, and there was a big conference in Germany, and they were confronted. Um, uh, Mr. Zierke from Commerzbank and Mr. Krein, who by the way is British. Um, I don't know whether this has anything to do now with the with the, with the latest uh, dump in, in share price. I hope not. But there were there were talks there, and and they were confronted with this with this truth, and um, and both of them obviously vigorously said no, it's, that doesn't make sense. But does it? This, the infrastructure problems for both are exactly the same. The branch network is exactly the same. Both have too many employees in there. Um, I don't think that they're really prepared for the future with everything they are doing. So there's there's a lot of problems coming in. So uh, it, m- it might make sense. It sounds like a crisis with no plan. <laughs> it's in most cases is like that, right? This yeah. is, um, we all talk about business continuity management, but when a crisis kicks in, do we really know what business continuity it, it, means? Arguably a systemically risky bank, isn't it? And the, I think the really scary thing is um, not only do they not know their exposure to the market, the market doesn't know their exposure to Deutsche. And yeah. this, I think, again, sums up one of the major issues in banking. You know, where were we in 2008? I was talking to uh, a friend of mine who was saying they were working at Goldman in 2008 and they, they were trying frantically to figure out what their exposure was to Lehman. Yeah. People mm-hmm. are now trying to do this to Deutsche. And not well, that's of- why they're being mentioned in the same breath as Lehman because it's something like 42 trillion euros worth of derivatives exposures around Deutsche Bank and obviously those net net out so you know the net net is probably nowhere near that number but because the systemically dangerous relationships between Deutsche and Asian and American banks is unknown everyone's saying wow we, let's just pull our positions because you can't measure it it's scary yeah. right if you could measure it it would be a lot less scary this is um, a, a crazy thing about the economy we're in but then you take our first story about um, you know we're already pumping steroids into the economy and we've done everything we can to print our way out of the last major global downturn and now we've got th- this potential on the precipice what happens if this does go down like what what tools are left in the in the arsenal well that um, one makes a brexit yeah, <laughs> we all leave. Yeah. We all leave. <laughs> well, screw this. Screw you guys. I'm going home. Well, well that, that's actually probably quite interesting with the next story because maybe the place that we could go is Mars, according to Elon Musk. But I think it's the get off the planet strategy, right? Elon Musk says uh, the first humans who journey to Mars must be prepared to die, <laughs> which I thought was a little bit ominous. I, I'll go on a second journey then. I don't know if I'm prepared to die. And also, I'm going to pay £200,000 for the privilege of maybe dying? It's it's a bit strange. But Elon, bless him, um, has invented, you know, he came out a couple of days ago and, and sort of had this full plan for making humans an interplanetary species. And, uh, you know, he's uh, announced the BFR and the BFS, and that's a big something rocket and a big something spaceship. I'll let you listeners figure out what that means. But um, I, like, I like the boldness of that plan. It's got swearing, it's got rockets, it's got spaceships. But it, but it also takes us back to a different era. I mean, there, there were plenty of times in history where people pioneers did travel to foreign lands with you know a very very real uh, possibility that they would die along the way <laughs> so whether off to australia whether off to the us whether they were heading west you know that 
this has happened before. And it, mm. I think it's one of those, uh, one of those things where, you know, we look at this and say, well, that's crazy because we've just not lived that period of history where people were exploring and moving to new places. I think that's a key thing that a hundred years ago, taking six months to go to Australia or somewhere by boat seemed like a hellish thing to do, but people did it. And that's what Elon Musk is comparing this to that a century from now, you know, living on Mars seems like stupid, it's stupid, stupidity today, but a century from now, it'll just feel normal maybe. And there is something about, sorry, um, for, but there is something about, um, there being no risk takers anymore. I saw a really good article in the FT about the growth of the 20th century is a bubble if you look at the rest of history there hasn't been growth like there was in the 20th century ever like it was just a really rare thing but also we had a couple of wars that caused that and we had a space race and a cold war now what have we got that's pushing us and making us pioneer about the only thing i can see is good old little elon musk and everything else is a phone like it's it's overpopulation actually i mean we've got seven billion people on the planet there were three billion people when i was born based on aging everyone's going to live to a hundred or more with life sciences give it another 25 years there'll be a trillion people on this planet it's not sustainable so that's the reason why musk is saying it's multi-planetary i think you guys are crazy sorry like just just like like the idea that you're you know when when somebody was going up the himalayas there was like local people being paid to show people where it was you weren't paying 200 thousand dollars or whatever type thing for what seems like a one-way ticket from what we can read to sort of the privilege of dying like that contract that you signed to do this must be hellish so you know Deutsche Bank getting into trouble with uh, you know mis-selling of stuff type thing I'll see what Ellen's contract is in terms of this one so uh, Jason just a funny parallel when you said that about um, pioneers and that it's actually you know a long time ago and that's the first time that actually people try that again isn't that a nice parallel to fintech as well you know the first people who do it the first pioneers of fintech they might die they might not succeed but they are the they, they path the way for the ones to come actually so uh, the, the pioneers we have seen in the, in the last centuries they, they did the same thing maybe some of the early fintechs are doing now aren't they yeah i guess it's that bringing that pioneer thing to your life you know there's one thing to start new businesses that might succeed and fail but this is like moving to a different planet but i totally take your point you know we're we're living in an age of uncertainty with machine learning and you know ubiquitous networks and intelligent systems and ai coming along um you know it's just a it it is one of those crazy riskful you know to use the chinese proverb interesting time I think Philip's actually brought us back to the fintech reality rather than being on Mars, yeah, good, which is... Um, <laughs> good, good work, Lady. That was but, good. Yeah. But, 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 but related to that, that's the whole reason why so much venture capital funding is going into fintech, because they're looking for the Amazons, the um, Alibabas of the fintech world, and there won't be many. There's just going to be one or two in each space, but whoever those one or two are, we don't know yet when they come out. Everyone's going to be making billions out of those too if we they invested in them early. And do banks need to get off the planet of their old systems? Ooh. Certainly, John Crine and Deutsche do. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting though. So, like the idea of like you might die. Well, actually, the worst case is is that you might get bought by BBVA or BPCE or yeah. or the other way around. If you're a big bank, is your planet slowly dying like Interstellar, and you have to go find a new planet? And if you've not seen that movie, it's a movie reference, and it's quite a bad movie. But. <laughs> I, admit, I always like the idea of ING buying Deutsche because it would then be Deutsching. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speaking of um, moving back towards fintech, um, we're going to make this a little break city. The Telegraph has an article here uh, saying almost 5,500 firms use something called passports to access the EU from the UK. Jason, what's this about? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's an FCA, I guess, you know, damage assessment or potential risk assessment. And so they've looked at, uh, okay, we all know that a, a, 
a passport allows a, a financial organization, an asset manager, a bank, an insurer in one country to then go and operate in another country uh, and not have to get re-regulated and go through that process, but actually to use their, their home territory, their home regulation in order to work that out. So the FCA said, okay, well, well how, many, how many people does that affect? How many passports are we really talking about? And when they looked at it, they found that there was five. There were five thousand four hundred and seventy-six UK registered firms uh, who do passporting to do business elsewhere in the EU. And interestingly, a further eight thousand and eight financial companies from the EU or the European Economic Area that, that passport into into UK. And that's just the firms. When you actually look down to sort of financial products, you, you came to this the staggering figure of three hundred and thirty-six thousand. 421 passports. So I think this just gets into the the kind of the nitty gritty of what would Brexit entail if every one of those firms doing every piece of that business then had to get re-regulated elsewhere. You know, that's a, a fundamental change in the, the kind of fabric of, of European finance. It's a huge worry about the Brexit negotiation, which is that um, the passporting is given to us whilst we have single market access. And you can only get single market access if you agree to the four pillars of the European Union, which is free movement of goods, services, capital and people. We're trying to remove the free movement of people, and in the process, therefore, you can't keep single market access, which means you lose passports. And that's the big discussion point in terms of the city in particular and fintech and the banking community. Cause well, especially because the US and Asia use you know, the UK yeah, often as the a channel into the, the EU. So this isn't just, a, oh, well, it's bad for the, for the UK and, you know, we're going to make you bleed because you, you know, chose to, uh, to leave the, you know, the, the EU. It, it's bad for, for Europe. Yeah. Do we have the counter figure as well? So from the European Union into into to Britain, eight thousand and eight firms passport in passport into in the UK. Okay, wow, that's a significant number. And connected to this one, David found a story here saying uh, the London Mayor Sadiq Khan confirms that the London Work Permit plans to stop the post Brexit exodus. What's the London Work Permit? Is there any flesh on this one, or is it just a pie in the sky idea here? Well, we've been talking about everybody leaving the Earth to go to, to Mars, and actually this one looks like London leaving the in- England to uh, sort of move on in its merry way type thing. So I'm not sure if there's going to be some sort of wall erected around London to kind of keep it as a... Actually, didn't we have one of those and it got knocked down, didn't it, at some point? Mm. Looking to the history buff with Chris here on this one. But um, So yeah, the, the idea that, that basically a, a work permit is going to be set up to allow uh, people from European countries to, to, to come in in a post-Brexit world. The, the, square, the, the square mile was that Roman wall. Yeah. Like, well, thank you. You googled it in your brain. That was good. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, this is going to be incredibly difficult to enforce. I'm not really sure how they're, they're going to go about doing this one. But, um, you know, the, the mayor of London does seem to be trying to sort of protect London from... England people, which is good. So interesting uh, thing Sadiq Khan's done since he come in. So I saw a thing where he's trying to take over most of the Southern Railways as well, because he's basically going, "Give it to me, we won't mess it up. You guys are useless." And he's kind of doing that now with the UK. It's kind of the city-state thing going on, and actually, it kind of works when you're looking out for London's interests, right? It just you got to worry about the rest of the UK's economy lagging behind. This the London has powered away from the rest of the UK economy, and as a Northern boy, part of me's like. Oh, 
what about the north? You know, but, but that's actually true of nearly all the big uh, financial centres. So New York is not really American; it's New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Singapore is not a country; it's a city yeah. that is its own city. Hong Kong, you know, they, they're all becoming places and destinations that are metropolises that are separate from the rest of the world cities that yeah. that really stand out. And I think actually what you find is very like Berlin, a very international population, uh, very high talented people who travel a lot um, and know know more people in other cities than they probably know in, in the country itself. It, isn't it nice though as a you know to actually have somebody in charge of this now that really sort of feels like they're doing something you know for for all of the sort of whiff waff nonsense that came out of Boris Johnson type thing then actually it really does sort of feel like uh, you know Sadiq Khan is really sort of uh, pushing forward on the the real issues and making something happen. He was in New York recently and made a real effort to do that so you know if we can stick up for fintech and stick up for London startup jobs I mean when Anna Herrera has said a couple of times on our podcast um, from eFinancial News that uh, you know the big concern in the startups world is, is really around talent and if you can fix that one i think that's one of the biggest issues that that would come out of brexit negotiations anyway um so that's that could be a scary one avoided and uh, um, speaking of um avoiding scary things accenture created an editable blockchain yeah moving on yeah i know i'm interested in this one because um you know, uh, I, uh, it seemed to start with a, uh, I don't know if you guys heard the story, that it seemed to start with something that seemed ridiculously counterintuitive. You know, there was, you know, uh, Accenture came along. Maybe, Simon, you can kind of explain, like, the background to it. Because an editable, an editable technology? Yeah, by its very definition, it sounds like it's breaking its own rules. And it sounds kind of like an oxymoron. Mm. And... I still believe it is, but I think it's a well-intentioned oxymoron. Um, so what you've got here is uh, somebody's worried about making a $50 billion trade by accident with a fat finger error and then not being able to reverse that trade. So you talk, you mean I can't reverse that $50 billion? I've just lost $50 billion. I don't want that technology. This blockchain thing sounds stupid. I want an editable one. And what you really want there is a regular database that you can edit. The point of a blockchain isn't really to manage what transactions you can do. It's to be the auditor, in my opinion. So having an editable audit trail basically allows for abuse. We don't want an editable audit trail. What we want is the ability to reverse transactions. That's a different requirement. Now, what Accenture have done is they've gone out and built, you know, they've gone and engineered some amazing cryptography that gives a master key kind of a backdoor to edit anything they want in the blockchain. And it's quite neat. It's like a scalpel. You can go and edit these specific transactions under specific security measures. But still, one of the biggest risks that uh, blockchains potentially prevent is things like LIBOR rigging. The internal fraud risk is one of the best reasons why you would have a blockchain in the first place, to prevent those internal fraud risks. To give those internal people a skeleton key to still change the audit trail seems still counterintuitive. So I can see why they've done it i can see the requirement they've done it for but perhaps it just needs a little bit more thought there might be more elegant or even more simple ways to solve that problem just out of interest not on the um accenture story but as a startup capital of technology and fintech in europe here in berlin what's happening with blockchain blockchain is is obviously uh, on everybody's mind uh, they say uh, there's a lot of uh, blockchain uh, companies out there, most of them still focusing on, on Bitcoin, obviously. Um, the next thing they're moving in, or what we can see, there's a, there's a lot of things going uh, forward is with identification, which, which is, which is, everybody is looking for, for use cases for the blockchain. I think that is uh, coming down from a, from a, from a very neat technology, as you just said, Simon, to, 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 to the actually 
um, to, to the grasp of the people to, to, to put it in a use case and that, that use case not being just Bitcoin. Mm. So I think um, there's a lot of companies out there trying something, but none of them, as I could see so far, has actually broken that, uh, that, that path. Because you int- introduced me to a company last night that was doing something interesting. That's cool. Uh, no, no, them as well, okay. but there was another one as well. Yeah. Uh, well, there was a couple of companies last night at the events um, um, working on in a, on a blockchain. I think it was, I don't know which one. Uh, Bit, Bit Walla. Uh, it was a Bit Walla. Or Bitbond. 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 Okay. What, what happens there, and this is quite interesting, and this is, you said that as well, using the blockchain technology is one thing and, um, or, or as an audit trail. What they do is not use it as an audit trail, but what, what they've done is uh, they created a, an SME lending based on, on a very scalable system, like looking into, uh, multi-vendor systems like eBay, Amazon, stuff like that. So they can, they can basically, um, create their, their scoring and rating systems on an international level, which is fantastic. No one else can do that that fast. But what they use Bitcoin for is to, to transfer the actual funds. So they grant a loan, US dollar dominated or uh, euro denominated, and um, to grant this loan to someone in Argentina, they, they need to send the funds over there. What they do is they convert it into Bitcoin and there it gets reconverted into US dollars or euros. So that's mm. quite interesting. Mm. So you use the technology and you bring it to life for a real world application. And I think the, we have to make baby steps. And I think that is one of those. Yeah. It was interesting because they obviously have this problem of how do you do uh, risk analysis, sort of risk assessment of, yeah. of a loan uh, without getting, you know, the data there or what can we use? Yeah. You know, people's histories in eBay and Amazon and everything else. And then how do we send the money over? You know, how do we do remittance without those rails, yeah. assuming that we don't want to use sort of some of the established companies and i was talking to the guy last night about their their exposure then becomes yeah. to changes in price in bitcoin for 30 seconds but actually looking at the you know the volatility of bitcoin compared to the price of you know what uh, transferring you know large amounts of money across the world is they've done the maths and, and that uh, works it's, it's not it's not just the, the price of it it's, it's the time as well but yeah. it takes it just just send swift just take swift yeah, and just use it as a channel to send money all over the world. So their blockchain in whatever application will change it dramatically. So this is, I think, here we got a first application of it, but this is just payment combined with credit business, but credit business still being the old world. Mm-hmm. But then when you take this to the next level, the contracting being on blockchain. Yeah, smart control. contracts are where it's at. And, and, and speaking of smart contracts, the, the Ethcore guys I know are based here and um, Dr. Gavin Wood, who is one of the key guys in the Ethereum Foundation, has, has a team of people based out in Berlin. Very interesting um, organization like uh, Consensus. They're building all around the Ethereum platform. And then there's also a lot of sort of independent developers I'm aware of based in Berlin. Again, they like the access. Um, Bigchain DB are based here as well. Bigchain being something that is kind of more like a traditional database with some blockchain-like features but much more scalable, much faster, um, probably for different use cases. So there's there's some real, real talent here. And actually, I, I bump into people in London all the time that are based in Berlin, visiting London to do sales, but their engineers are here. So you know, tremendous blockchain um, talent based here. A couple of last stories to round out the news. Our good friends at uh, Scalable Capital, who are on show, uh, show 10, the AI show, um, are attracting 4 million euros per week in deposits now, David. And I think there's a nice little um, shout out to those guys. That's insane. You know, it's um, only nine months after launching, they're, they're getting 4 million a week 
in deposits. That's yeah, quite uh, quite a scary one in terms of actually what they're uh, what they're getting. Obviously, they're headquartered in Munich as well, so continuing the uh, the sort of German theme of the show in terms of sort of where we're going. So, but yeah, awesome! Congratulations to those guys. Well done, and uh, look forward to having them back on the show soon. And then, last story of the week: uh, Simple has launched a dual card and or dual account. So this is for a number of uses. Well, it's an account for jewels. Uh, indeed, yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's an account for um, apparently people who are couples, life partners, or just um, shared tenants, uh, people who happen to be roommates. So, Jason, what's this one about? Yeah, I mean, I love this. I think it's something that we've we've spoken about for a long time about traditional banking being one person, one account, one balance. That's about it, and that actually we don't live like that. You know, we live in families, we live in groups, we share houses with people, we share our lives with people. And the ability to share money across that that area is definitely a use case, a a problem to be solved for most banks. Every, I think most uh, people of my age have had the experience of meeting a girl and your lives and finances like slowly colliding of how <laughs> collapsing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you, how do you make a joint account? How do you set your money up? How does that all work? Uh, and it's horrific at the moment. It's a bit like SME banking. It's just one of those areas that's horrible. And so I think Simple have, have launched this, um, this shared cards ability where you can, you can set up a pot to draw money for bills or whatever else. You can both track it. You can both move things. It's very much still in, I think, alpha invite only. But there's two things here. One is obviously addressing a need. But secondly, there's something, there's an interesting implication implication for underlying infrastructure for core banking systems because they were never meant to deliver this kind of thing so i guess that brings us over to sort of platforms like solaris and the fact that actually those those um you know traditional players that are bought into or tied into a particular way of accounts working you know there's a need for um for new types of underlying platforms to enable this kind of thing we'll hear a little bit more about solaris jason uh, after some words from our sponsor Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. So we're here in Berlin with uh, Marco from Solaris Bank. Uh, Marco, I want you to tell us a little bit about Solaris Bank. But first, why don't you tell us your story? What what got you here? Why, why are you doing Solaris Bank, you crazy man? Crazy man, I think, is a good uh, is, a, is a good word to describe it with. It's um, actually I've been in banking and finance for over twenty six years now, so that might seem like a very long time, and it, it actually is. Um, when when I was uh, studying, uh, what, uh, what what was the subject of uh, of my my interest was how banking could change over time. But this was some twenty years back. So my thesis was about uh, change management in banks back then. And I always, at this time, already had these fights with these uh, guys from quality management. Well, I always say quality management is just is just a, a synonym for not doing it right. So just you make bad things just a little bit better. Yeah. So this is um, it's, so there we started thinking, or I started thinking, what what can I do better there? And then I moved over to Argentina and to Poland and, and saw different things how how uh, this can uh, work out in different angles in the world. And um, a couple of years back, I, I wrote a, another thesis about um, uh, corp, uh, um, retail banking in, in Europe, how this is going to develop over the couple, uh, couple of years to come, so five to ten years. And, um, and this really got me thinking, what, what, what is the next level here? 
And then obviously I came across some uh, some books of Brett King and uh, of Chris and so on and so forth. And uh, the discussions which, which were there is about banking as a platform. That was actually the next level. And what I realized together with the guys when I was talking with Andy and the, the other guys from the, from the founding team, realized there was a lot of talking about it, but nobody actually has done it. So that was what, what really got us off. And we said, all right, can we do it? The, the theory of it was very nice. The theory of it was very appealing to us. But can you actually make it happen to, to look at it from a, from a technical angle and then bring it to life with a, with a, with a license? And I'd say we succeeded there. Now we have to bring it to the next level to have to make it live with more partners, with more customers and so on and so forth. So for, for people who don't know, who don't know Solaris, yeah. go down a level from that. Like yeah. what does it mean to deliver banking as a platform? It's imagine I'm a, I'm a fintech and I come to you as a potential client. Yeah. This is, this is what we originally thought about building a bank for fintechs. Because fintechs usually have three, they, they look at banks from, from three, three different angles. One, they need a target to disrupt. That's number one. Then they, very often, because they don't have licenses, or very often they don't have licenses, they need a bank to partner with. And the third one is actually they need banks just to be their customer. So that was our original angle. But then we, we, we got around it and thought and could see there's much more companies out there from the digital age who are already moving into a business model which actually is regulated. Just look at the PSD1, PSD2 and stuff, so Payment Services Directive, where there's much more services regulated than you would actually think of. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of marketplaces out there who are falling under the PSD1 and PSD2, and they are not taking that seriously. So and we looked at the, the entire market, not just fintechs, but all those companies, and many companies, they just say, I don't want to have to do anything with regulation because if I do, it costs me a lot of money. It takes a lot of, uh, uh, puts a lot of pressure on my team. It slows my processes down and so on and so forth. So what they need is a partner who takes care of that piece. And that's us. We basically say we got the banking license so that you don't have to. So is this, uh, you know, you could look at TransferWise or Monzo or those kinds of companies. And, and I assume this platform could be for the next generation that comes there. But is it wider as well? You know, could the next Uber that needs to do bill splitting or the next eBay, you know, use the same thing? Does it, is it just financial services or almost any big digital? And that is, ex that's exactly the point. It's not about just creating a new account or just a, a payment service or something like this. But what we have to, what we have to go away from is to think banking as an abstract thing out there. It's not anymore. And it will be even less in the future. So what, what's going to happen is, and this is not me looking into a crystal ball, which is uh, as vague as it, as it could go. No, but this is, these are things which you can see already now, which the markets are, are asking for, demanding, basically. So banking is going back to where it belongs, into the value chain. So it's not going to be abstract anymore. It goes into the background. And that's where I think it belongs. Because if you, Uber, you said, you said that. And it's not just Uber. Just think about you want to go from London to Berlin and actually not having to take out your wallet once. I think that is the idea of where, where banking fits into real life, right? With, um, with a connected mobility, mo mo connected living, basically. And that's where banking should be, including then higher scale products like uh, credits or loans or stuff like that. So you just, you just see a thing and you want to buy it. 
And you don't have to go to a bank branch to 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 sit in front of the clerk if the bank is open, by the way, which usually it's not. <laughs> so, um, and you sit in front of a bank clerk and get the loan. No, you want this there, then, and now. Yeah? And that's exactly where I think that uh, that the banking is moving, and we're preparing Solaris Bank to ex- doing exactly that. To we were talking about pioneers. Yeah? This is this. Uh, it was very nice that you, that you guys gave us this uh, this this ball to kick it in, into 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 the arch. Our, our subtitle is Empowering Finance Pioneers. So if I put it in context, because in some ways I'm sitting here sort of thinking seven years ago I was writing about banking as a service and I, obviously it's now articulated better as platformification and other capabilities. But the whole idea of that was that banking could be deconstructed into components and those components could then be bundled as widgets that could plug and play anywhere and the customer or the corporate client can then reconstruct those components into whatever they want it to be and it's as simple as just dropping um, an API into into a process and that's effectively what you're now offering. Absolutely. When, when you just look at what uh, so Forty provides on PayPal, or they have been doing over the past, basically, they, they took complex things and they brought it to a very simple level. So you can basically now, as a merchant, you just go into a, uh, or, or creating a shop yourself if, if you want to take the entire value chain, which was very complicated before. But now we just take the components of, I don't know, a shop software, a, your, your POP software, a different softwares and a checkout system. And you just put these things together. And if you don't want one of these components, you just exchange them. And that's exactly which could work in banking as well. There's no reason why it could work in any other application in the world but in banking. There is, however, there's one little thing which is called regulation, <laughs> which makes the thing not as easy. But I think that is particularly interesting because for other entrants, it puts the, 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 the entry barrier a bit higher. So it's not that, that everybody can come around the corner and do it. So it requires some, some specific skills. But the foundation is technology and understanding that banking is de facto technology. I also think it's interesting because, it, sorry, but when I was talking to you, you said you got a banking license thinking that your focus marketplace was going to be fintech companies, startups. And yet you found quite a few of the companies you're working with are retailers. They're completely outside the marketplace you expected. Well, this is, the, but it was fantastic, right? You start, you start a business and you think that is your market. Your market is some hundreds, like 200 or 300 fintechs in Europe, maybe on a worldwide scale, some 12,000 or so. But then you realize a couple of weeks down where you invested, where you invested time, soul and, and everything and money, obviously. And, and then you realize the market is actually way bigger than that. So this is where it really got us on, and uh, and um, obviously then we kicked it even even harder to to make it just in such a short, short time to get the banking license. It's always nice to find out the marketplace is a lot bigger than you thought it was, which is uh, it's nicer that way than the other. The other way, way around, so, exactly, right? exactly. So when you look at sort of platforms as a service, infrastructure as a service, not in financial services but in other digital spheres, yeah. for instance, AWS. Um, Amazon provide a number of of different components and a number of different services that you can then plug into through APIs and have contracts and service level agreements around that kind of thing. What are those components for you? First of all, um, and I hope that we don't get sued by Amazon by using them as a, it's just a, it's a, it's a parallel, but we already say we are the Amazon or the AWS of banking. So there you go. That's exactly the same thing. Now, when you break it down into components, again, banking and um, uh, looking at core banking systems and stuff like that, everything is just one big monolith and it's very complicated, but it's actually not. Uh, it's actually a very, very simple thing. If you are able 
to be abstract, to, to, to look at things from a, from a, from just a couple of meters away. So, um, the components we have, obviously, and we are just started. We are just now six months down the road after our, our, uh, getting our license, etc. So nobody, not us, not anybody else expects us to have everything already now. So what we have is obviously the, the core functionalities which a bank should offer account services um, and, and, and transfers and direct debits and stuff like that. And we do have on top of it, we do have functionalities on the asset and liability side of the balance sheet. So basically lending as well as deposits, as well as, and this is very interesting, a very automated way for dealing with e-money, which is electronic money, which basically the regulation of uh, PSD1 and PSD2 came out because Papers and the like, they were not regulated for over 15 years. So, and this is, this is things we, we concentrated on because the regulation with PSD2 coming into place, what is a year from now, uh, will be even or stronger. Mm-hmm. And this is for us, it's just fighting up, uh, fighting up the, the sales pipeline. So these are the components which you already have. But now it's interesting being a platform. We moved away from just white label banking. Because white label bank, how we see it is, it's a one-to-one relationship with one white label bank, with one provider on a very legal basis, not on technolo- te- technological basis. The next evolution is API, API banking. Everybody's talking about it, but we just think it's just evolution is straight off of the white label banking. It is still one-to-one. A bit more technological though, but still one-to-one. Mm-hmm. So what we see platform, banking as a platform, and um, you, you, you are, uh, you can quote me on that, uh, Chris, in your next <laughs> book. Uh, it is basically an end-to-end relationship, which you will have in banking there. And it's very technologically driven and obviously legally driven. So that components, providers can be our partners. We call our customers, we call them partners. So a provider can be a partner at the same time. So that brings it really to the next level that, for instance, ID now, a very nice uh, company from Munich, we are using it because we don't have to do identification service for KYC purposes ourselves because there is a couple of them in the market. So what we are trying to do is getting all of them on our platform and our partners, they can choose in their products, which they basically arrange, they can choose which of those particular services or these these components they're actually taken so you're really saying you've got a marketplace where you're offering a range of capabilities some solaris based some coming from partners absolutely yeah Uh, and what's interesting is compared to the conversation we've had with n26 yesterday or indeed you know the conversations with tom at mondo or monzo um that almost creates two platform levels. Yeah. You know, on one hand, you've got a customer that through their front-end interface can actually start to say, well, I'd like to do peer-to-peer lending and and to you do remittance using this service and a variety of other services. And then sort of behind the scenes on the back end, yeah. you know, there are a whole set of other sort of platform components you can bring in around KYC mm-hmm. and machine learning and uh, risk and, you know, and, and, and. I mean, if I get it, I think Mark is, you know, saying N26 and Monzo could be in their marketplace and equally they might be using components from Solaris in their services yeah. too. Yeah. yeah, there's the and behind the scenes components and the and front of the scenes components. But, but one of the big things that um, struck me yesterday when we were talking is you said uh, your number of people have doubled in about six months from 35 to 70. So are they um, banking technologists? I mean, who are these people within Solaris? A very clever man said yesterday, people working in banks are risk managers, they're not technologists. So we we take rather the Google approach, the Facebook approach, every new hire must be a technologist. 
obviously, we have to take risk measures as well. Obviously, we have to take care about compliance, but taking compliance and risk management to another level, to a very automated level. The v- a very good example is, in, you, you, you guys are saying it's not digitizing analogous processes, but it's digi- really bringing them to a digital age. Because what's happening usually is, you, you, you have your process, you, you sometimes even have data in some sort of database, but then uh, the, the next step is to, to bring them to analogous world again and then somehow bring them back to, to digital age, right? There's no point of it. So really using, using them. Now coming back to, to, to uh, what you just asked is obviously that is, that's exactly, that's exactly what we, that's what we're doing because that is, we are in the back, in the back end. We are creating those services, or we are creating the the components that other uh, can can build the products on. So I I love sort of there's the theory and in practice, yeah. and I've you know partially lived the in practice what it's like to use a third party provider uh, and someone else's banking license in order to to launch an alpha and beta um, product. Uh, and in theory, it's great as a as a platform. You've got APIs, you've got the ability to move and create counts and everything else. But obviously, regulation does become you know a big piece. Yeah. Uh, and just as an example, we were talking about yesterday. You know, if you get a customer in and on their and they you know they explain their business plan, they sign up, they've got customers that are that are essentially your customers as well because they're on your banking license. And on their website, they make some outrageous claim or their CEO tweets that they're you know they will guarantee a, an 11% you know return on investment or your money is totally safe and can never be lost then i guess that's that's down to you and if if things go wrong the regulator is going to come looking for you rather than them absolutely so, so on yeah. one hand there's there's this the scale of digital the ability that you could you know provide infrastructure services to thousands of next generation digital platforms is there a reality around the the regulation and compliance of founders who might not understand any of the regulations around treating customers fairly or financial promotion or you know a whole a whole swathe of of regulation this is this is the absolute truth of it but there we can see as well what customers on one hand expect and regulation which regulation actually offers we are there to translate the two worlds basically there is obviously when you when you make a startup when you when you when you want you want to sell you want to make money you want to get investors you eventually want to make an exit etc and you do a lot of things in order to get there and that's fully understandable but if you play in the financial arena and that's what banks always complain about traditional banks they always complain about the level playing field and if you're playing in the financial arena you have to play to the rules full stop so you cannot do it and every entrepreneur in the in the fintech space or in a digital space having to do something with finance they have to understand that they cannot just screw up i give you a very good example and an analogy of that we are sitting in a beautiful building in berlin this street down there there's a there's a, a, um, a limit of 30 kilometers an hour so if i now say ah, i have a top floor building uh, uh, floor here and I, I, in my rental contract, I want to, uh, to write that I, Marco, that I can write on that very street 100 kilometers an hour. I might want to do that, but the regulation is on that street is 30 kilometers an hour, right? Mm-hmm. So I have to play to the same rules as everybody else. And I think this is, that is something with all the technology and with all the scalability, everybody has to bear that in mind. Yeah. This is a financial arena. And there are rules and everybody playing them has to play to them. Now, 
Coming to the compliance part, and obviously we are ultimately responsible for that. Again, it makes it easier if we, first of all, understand the business model, which we do, right? And the second thing is, as we as we are striving for a hundred percent straight through processing rate, we we are very 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 digital. So we are not one percent digital banking. We are rather in the sixty or seventy percent, not hundred percent, but sixty seventy percent. So we are striving to the hundred percent. So we do have a much better grasp on what is actually going on there, and we can see whether the customers are treated fairly or not. And that is where RegTech comes in as well. This is with RegTech mm. or regulations yeah. are sexy, right? So this is where we bring to our um, components as well the regu- regu- regulation technology in, which uh, makes it easier to make our partners live up to the rules which we are ultimately responsible for. And, and I think you, you know, you're, the word you keep using there is partners, right? The, the, you, what you're not creating is an open access. Anybody can build a bank. Anybody can deliver services. What you're doing is you're creating good services that actually will make material differences throughout the stack. So I think it, it's that partnership approach that you're there to help people get to the market. And, and it's and it's interesting, you know, in certain markets, you know, in the UK, we've seen the sandbox pop up with what the FCA are doing and, you know, their, their angle of actually being able to allow people to, you know, increase the speed that they can kind of get to market. Yeah. Arguably, you're kind of filling the gap that potentially the, the, the German regulator could have been doing in terms of this space to actually accelerate uh, what startup potential. But there's be. also a, a, a bigger point there, I think, which is that um, everyone in London holds up the FCA and the ease of um, now getting to access the regulator. And yet quietly, I think Barfin has been sort of becoming a bit hip. they kind of <laughs> like encouraging guys like you. I mean, how, how easy was it to get the banking license? It was not an easy walk, let's say. Let's <laughs> put it that way. This is, I think it would be strange if it was, right? So yeah. it's... Um, I will come back to sandbox in, 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 in regulation there or regulation light later. Um, but, but talking about the, the, the license, obviously we were thinking which markets could we, uh, in which market could we try to get a license in the first place? Obviously UK or Gibraltar and Malta and some other strange locations were on the, on the, on the horizon as well. But then finally we decided for Germany. Why? Because the core team is in Germany. We've created a couple of banks in Germany, so we know how to do it. The team knows, which is obviously much easier. And just because the FCA might be a bit more open doesn't mean it's easier or it doesn't mean that it's cheaper and stuff like that. And then we did, the second decision was, do we get a full bank license or do we just get a couple of um, catalog, like four or five or six? We got the, the entire kits and caboodles, so everything what a, what a full banking license entitles uh, you to do. And... Um, we, we made a proper plan. We talked to the regulators. We, we, we got them on board very early on in, in discussions and, and, and they realized fintech is not going to go away. The internet is not going to go away. It's there. PSD2 is coming. Further regulations are coming. So they prevented a, basically an, an overflow of, of, uh, of problems by saying, Hey, come on, guys. Maybe that's the right approach. Just bringing others up to speed there and helping them to bring more compliance to the market. And that's just basically, so, so we got a lot of support there from, from, from Buffett in that case, but it was still, it was not an easy walk and there were some back and forth, obviously, but, um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's fair to say that we, that we got the fastest banking license in the last 10 years in, in, in Germany. What, what, what was the time scale from starting to? Get, well, getting license. First, first idea to banking license twelve months, um, but wow. um, but from the point when we actually could file, and, and Jason, you you have filed a couple of times as well, right? So this is a, from filing to to getting it was eight months. And comparing Buffin and FCA, 
Well, it's difficult for me now to say because FCA has an, has, an, has another has another angle. It's um, Bafin is more on the regulation part. FCA has as well the second, which is the the anti trust or anti um, the, the so they they. they I mean, uh, the competitive, the competitive, right? They they have to they have to increase competi- competition there. Bafin is not yet there, so FCA always has and probably will always will be much more business orientated than than uh, than a German bureaucratic organization. Let's face it, uh, but but they're they're getting there. They're getting there. It's not everywhere, and it's um, baby steps. So um, you've been on quite a journey. You know, the team yeah. is is a lot. It's a lot bigger. You've built platforms. You've you know you've got customers, which you know which is amazing for as a bank as a next generation bank as a platform. Um, what do you think you know have been on one hand the secrets of your success, things that you've done really well, and secondly, uh, what what would you do differently if you were uh, if if we <laughs> took you back in time and dropped you uh, dropped you back in the day? I think this, if if you didn't take any learning, then you 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 did a lot of things wrong. First uh-huh. of all, right? So yes, I think we we have a lot of learnings. Um, uh, what is the secret of uh, of success? There, I don't. I can't say that we are successful now. This is this is everything is still very early on to say, and it's very important to always bring us back down to earth. And I think this everybody has to understand that. Um, nevertheless, I think it's a. Uh, you do, doing things properly, getting real um, uh, pros on the team, both from a regulation perspective as well from a technological perspective, from a mindset. Yeah? Really forward-thinking people, being international right from the beginning, not uh, in, in regions or markets where you're active, but on the team. Uh, so our team is some 30 40% um, are not German. So this is very important as well. So get a kick-ass team on, on board mm-hmm. and everything is fine. That, that These are the most important success factors, luck. In timing, fair to say. Yeah. Um, what would we? What would would have done different there? A couple of things, I guess, uh, is um, maybe even getting getting more investors on a on a on a on a, on a global scale, on a, a at least European scale, right from the beginning, so that you you have more uh, a push in this direction, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah. Plan as and prepare as good as you can. And so I guess we hear time and time again that talent and team and getting mm-hmm. that getting those people involved, you know, is so key to success. Absolutely. How do you recognise someone who should work for Solaris versus someone who shouldn't? It's quite interesting. First of all, yeah, we, we have we have interviewed a lot of people, and um, as Chris said before, is we, we've scaled up uh, up to seventy people now. How how, we, how we, did we do this? I think we have a very coming out for out of a company builder, so we we could rely on a certain structure which was already there, especially in the HR team or P&O as we call it, people in organization. So this was a, a quite good, a quite good uh, way forward. But then I think one of the most important things is every new person who starts here has been interviewed at least by five to six people in the team. Why? Because the a little manco, a little deficit in the in the in the in, in the knowledge can be dealt with. What cannot be dealt with is a non-fit to the team. So that is we think extremely important to get many people involved in the hiring process. It is tedious. It takes time. But I guarantee you, it takes more time to get Deadwood out. And uh, no, seriously, or toxic. This is, if I may say that, this is obviously, uh, don't want to be, uh, subject to, 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 to lawsuits here. But this is, there are people who can really screw up the organization, isn't yeah. it? Mm. Well, this is arguably what most of the banks are facing into, isn't it? It's, um, it's easier to, uh, get it right the first time than lower yeah. the, uh, HR bar and, uh, try and make up for it later. But, uh, 100,000 people later, not easy to do, right? 
And just um, wrapping up, I guess, uh, l- looking at the SEA buffing discussion we had earlier, what do you think the impact of Brexit is going to be? It's quite quite late for the elephant in the room, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, I think this um, we we are in a di- digital age. Uh, regulation is one part, and as we've um, heard in the news, that there's obviously a lot of things to figure out with passporting and so on and so forth. But um, Brexit is. For us, I don't think that this is a very big positive thing so that we could attract talent from, from the UK and stuff. So London, as you, as, you, as you pointed out yesterday, still is the city in Europe where you have everything very close. You have, you have the money, you have the, the, the technological talent, you have the, the banking talent and so on and so forth. So this is London will always play a very important role. So I don't think now that there's a huge um, uh, uh, wave of, of people coming over here and, and this. So I guess we don't look too much outside. They will say we concentrate on our market. We concentrate on what we do right or do wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, and Brexit. Well, I think this we will deal with it once once we are con- uh, confronted with the problem. We know what it is. Um, and I think um, f- figuring out what to do next. Um, if people want to figure out more what they should do next with Solaris, how do they get in touch with you? How do they find out more about you? Things like this is exactly how we make people aware of Solaris Bank, right? This is, um, we don't do marketing. We are not a, we are not a B2C, um, front endy kind of, uh, uh, challenger bank, things like that. We are, we are basically the underlying infrastructure. And, um, so you find us about, uh, on our website, obviously, which we are relaunching now. We didn't even have time to relaunch our initial website from, from early March. So now we take it to the next level, but, one step after the other, obviously. So is that SolarisBank.com? Now it's SolarisBank.de. We still we're still in a not because we are uh, Germany fo- focused, but we still have a little bit of an issue with the with the .dot com. But um, we're solving that issue as well. And you're on Twitter, I assume, SolarisBank. Yes, we are. Excellent. And um, if you've not followed these guys, um, they're always up to no good and doing some fun things. So really good guys to to follow. Make sure you look out for them, listeners. And good beer too. Yes, oh, the, the beer is excellent as well. So, um, we recorded um, two interviews yesterday before all the beers happened and before Marco started getting us all very, very drunk. Um, and first of these interviews is uh, N26, the uh, Challenger Bank making headlines. So over to the interview. And now we're here with Valentin from N26. Valentin, who are you? <laughs> so I'm Valentin. I'm uh, CEO and co-founder of uh, N26. We are a mobile-first bank. We've just recently gotten our own banking license, and uh, we're building a platform for all your financial problems. Beautiful. And the name change recently, you were number 26, now you're N26. Is everybody getting used to the name change? What was behind that? So actually, as we, we always, one of the missions that we have is to build a pan-European bank, so in, in all countries over Europe, across Europe. Um, we discovered that it's easier internationally um, to to go with N26 than with number 26. And that's why we actually rebranded. So we did some research. Uh, and then I think it's great if you always can have a logo that's your name and your logo in one in one thing. You know, so you don't have need to have a logo and a name, but we can use N26 as both. Um, so it's it's more marketing reasons that we have behind the, the rebranding than, than others. So, so, so I've, I mean, I've been through a few rebrandings recently as well. And um, uh, did you have lots of choices? Were there like a big shortlist? Are there any names that you were thinking about that, uh, that you didn't go with? So you can always go do two directions. Either you do a complete rebranding or you just go from 
number 26 to N26, which yeah. anyway, our customers already called us. Yeah. So it, it was more, I, w- I would say it wasn't really rebranding, but it was more something that our customers already used. And, uh, and now we do make it the official name. Uh, so it wasn't complete rebranding. Also from kind of the style, the colors that we're using. So we didn't change the app completely. But I think every digital product is evolving over time. Uh, I think that's what we are doing. And, and the name change came with it. Uh-huh. So you were really kind of going with the flow of what your customers were telling you. That's pretty... And so speaking of international, then you're in eight countries now. And are you finding that as you move into different territories, the service is really different? Or is it kind of uniform and you can meet certain... There are certain jobs to be done in every territory. People have the same basic needs? Or how are you focusing around that? So, I mean, today we very much focus on the German and Austrian market as our core markets. And uh, now we recently are migrating now our customers onto our technological platform as well. And therefore, we're more aggressive on international markets, I think, starting again from November. Um, if you ask about the differences in the in the markets, I would say, I think personally, and what we see is that that actually the, the, there are not big differences. So, there's, there's this young generation of digital natives that have grown up with, with smartphones and if in basically they have the same needs, they want to pay cashless, they want to have transparency, they maybe have have too much money, then they want to invest, they want to save something, or they have too less money, they want to get a credit. What they all have together, they want to do it in in a smooth way on their smartphone everywhere. And I think that's the same for, for all across Europe. I would even go further. I would say it's the same in the US. It's the same in, 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 in Asia. Uh, it's the same in Australia. I, th- I think it's not so much defined by kind of what country you're coming from it's more defined by are you digital native or not on the other hand it makes it more difficult to have the same product in all countries because regulation is still a little different um so we've gotten our banking license which is valid all over europe but uh, you have different consumer protection laws if it comes to credit obviously you have to do different credit scorings so um having someone from italy uh, um, you have to score different than the german and also again people from the uk uh, you have to score them different if it comes to investment product and saving products, uh, it's easier normally to launch them in, 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 in several uh, several markets at the same time. But still, there are, again, different consumer protection uh, laws. So in, in some countries, it's it's completely uncritical to launch an investment product. In others, it's, it's, it's much higher regulated. The same is also true for credit, not just on the scoring side, but also on can you do it? Do you need a license and so on? So we're doing that part by part. Um, so really starting with the core experience, card and account in, in all the markets. And then, and that's a big difference of our companies, we kind of building a platform where we try to work together with the best fintechs or all traditional players from uh, all around the world or all around Europe. Um, and we've done that, for example, with TransferWise for international transfers. That's, for example, a product that you can go live easily in all countries at the same time because they are in all countries and, and we can go live with them in all countries. It's getting more difficult if you work with more regional players and that's, as I mentioned, on the on the lending and credit side, more like this. So it's very regional. So you have players in the UK that you don't have here. So that takes a little more time to get the the whole platform running and and have really an alternative in in every dimension that I've mentioned. But um, so we're starting with the niche product and then going on to to each of these segments: saving, investment, credit, and we're also doing digital insurance and. Uh, and mainly that's that's the things that we focus on. And now we very much focus on building the platform and completing it. And then you actually have an enforcing cycle. Because I, I would say in the beginning, people joined our company mainly because the user experience was great. But if you complete that platform, you have actually, you have in every dimension of a traditional bank, you, you're able to have the better product. Mm-hmm. 
and then not, it's not just the experience they're always much greater but then you also have maybe the better products you have the better pricing maybe you have you know just superior functionality in the product and i think that's where we want to get to and then you are much stronger than every bank i've got a whole raft of questions actually from what you just said but i'm <laughs> yeah. trying to keep it just to two and that when i first met you you were working with wirecard and didn't have the banking license and it sounds from what you just said that um, rather than just focusing on being a really good user experience and focusing on that niche and that front end, you've ramped up very quickly to get a banking license, to broadening the product offers, to working with fintechs as a partner. So wh- how, how, how easy is it to ramp up? Why, why, did, you, why did you need the license? Why, why not just stay narrow niche? So you mean why, why do we need the license? Yeah, and, and also broadening the offer to working with fintechs and yeah. So I think the license for me is always, I think from the outside, it, it, it looks a little less obvious than from the inside. Yeah. So from the inside, it's really obvious. It's like uh, you do something with a partner bank that has a has an IT system that is more traditional, much harder to, uh, to, uh, to use, much, much harder to innovate. Uh, the costs are much higher. And then on the other hand, uh, um, if you want to launch innovative products and you have never have the last say on launching a product, that's obviously getting very difficult. So I think if you want to be innovative and you want to be and you have you, you really want to be the one leading innovation, then you have to have your own own license to also have the last say in regulatory matters. And I think therefore, for the cost reason and for being innovative and using the best technology in the back, um, you have to get your own license. So that was kind of for us internally it was kind of a no brainer. But I, I also think that we've done a very good job in terms of the product that we built, and our customers really don't see how much how much effort is in the back. So, like, you know, covering up all, all the, the old systems and then having a great user experience is very much influenced by... I, so, we did it good on the front end for now and, and also our backend systems that we already have in place, are, I think, covering the rest. But now when we're really moving to our complete new infrastructure, we hope to, to go one level further in terms of making our, our, our product greater in, in terms of how fast it reacts, how, how much you can do real-time banking, how much transparency you can give, how fast transactions take. And also in the product offering, I mean, before it was much harder to, to open like different sub-accounts and, you know, it's a very simple things become very, very difficult. Now with our own system, we, we can easily do a lot of things. Yeah, um, and I, a lot of things in our head, obviously you always have to structure, you have to focus on the, on the important ones, but I believe that within the next 12 months after, after launching on our own um, backend infrastructure, I think you will see much more coming from, you know, real-time credits to, you know, expense sharing uh, that, that works within seconds and so on that we what we aren't able to do now. And I think Jason always talks about as well, uh, reacting real-time is good and also being event-driven. So a thing happens, a bill lands and you don't have enough money, but actually you might ha- have it in your savings. So if you can move money from savings to um, checking account immediately, cover the bill so that somebody doesn't get charged, that would be something a customer would love. That would be something you can build if you've got your own technology stack. And I think the point you make that I really want to highlight for our listeners is the cost of the back-end providers, you know, really changing that. And and the thing that strikes me, observing what you're saying, is you guys really are where the, this technology platform story meets the old world of compliance. Right. So there's how do you balance those two? Because if you outsource that to somebody else, somebody else makes all those compliance decisions for you. Whereas if you get a license, you guys can kind of make those decisions yourself. And one of the decisions I found really interesting is video onboarding. I've I've not seen this before. Like how have customers reacted to that? And what was what was the vision behind video onboarding? 
I think and, and maybe explain what video, video onboarding process yeah, is sure. as well. Yeah, so I think when you open a, an account with us, yeah, then uh, we def- we've been the first one or one of the first ones uh, that you can do that completely digital. So you, it's similar to a Facebook sign-up. Um, so you give us a couple of details about yourself, where you're living, your name. And then we do a video conference, uh, like a Skype call, very similar, where we check your passport. So you have to display the passport into the camera. Um, you have to move it around a little bit so we see the watermarks. Uh, and then we're checking uh, the things that you have typed in with the things on the passport. And then uh, we, everything's recorded and so on. And then after this, it's uh, it's it's like our KYC process. So you know, know your customer process. It's sufficient by, by German law. And uh, I would say that's one of the things that, that the customers that sign up to our service are, are most surprised uh, of. Because then, you know, account opening with a traditional bank normally took like, you know, one hour, maybe... There's even that story that, that with the traditional German banks, uh, on purpose, they said it has to take two hours at least to get to know you. So they, 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 didn't, they didn't speed up the process. They always try to keep you two hours there. And I think uh, uh, today, I think what, what young people are searching for is doing that quick, uh, having a great service and then move on. So I think with us, you can do it within six and eight minutes, depending on how fast you are in typing in. And then you, you have a fully-fledged account and you can immediately start it. You get an IBAN, uh, you can transfer money there and you, you're ready to go. And I think that's something, again, people are really fascinated about because you, you shorten the process normally is like uh, uh, two hours to, to like a couple of minutes. You can even do it at 10 at night, yeah, so if you want. So um, I think that's, uh, that's, that's a cool process and something that people really have valued. Wow, it's interesting, Jason. No, no, I was going to say it's. Uh, I can see that reducing the friction and enabling fast sign-up sort of really helps on that customer acquisition. You know, one thing I've, I'm sure I've heard to death is that any new banking service has to be ten times better than the existing incumbents. That there's this mythical friction and inertia, and no one really wants to change their bank accounts. What do you think brings customers to N26? What gets them across that that friction and, and inertia? So I think um, that the pain uh, of customers is really at, at a level in Germany and in a lot of other European countries that it's, or that's at least what we have seen, that people just move on. Yeah, they, they don't, they don't want to waste time, hours in, in the bank branch. They don't want to waste time, hours on, on getting the right uh, passwords to log into their online banking. Uh, they just want to do a slick service and they want to they they solve problems and they want to have transparency. And I think... The main things that have driven customers to our platform is really the ease of use. It's it's the transparency that we're giving our customers. And I think it's now kind of with the best products that we're trying to integrate on the platform, really the, the best products that you can use on the platform with a couple of clicks. And it's obviously everything on mobile. So, and it's, it's, it's even beyond, you know, a video conference to verify your account is cool. But at, at the moment, a couple of other banks in Germany are doing this as well. I think the importance is, that is seamlessly integrated into the process from end to end. Yeah. So with other banks, you know, you sign up, you get an email maybe to, to your inbox, then you, you click a link, then you're on a different page looking completely different. Uh, you do a process there, then this process is finished. You have to log into the other app again. So I think you always have to think about the journey. And I think people don't want to spend a lot of time on different options and so on. They just want to have a simple product, sign up quickly, and then go through the process. And they want to have their basic needs covered afterwards. And that's where you have to start. And then you can extend to build a great service. Right? So um, it, it is a strange one, though, isn't it? You, you're starting a relationship by having a terrible argument with somebody for an hour, filling in a form. You know, it's not a, it's not as a, as you mean to sort of go on, is it? So um, and we've seen, you know, 
obviously with Jason, what you've done with with Monzo in the UK as well, you've you've taken a quite different approach to doing it. But this sort of feels like it's the type of thing that existing banking organisations can't really copy. You know, have you, have you sort of seen a, a very difference in the mindsets of the customers that are coming to you from traditional banks? So I think I think. I think, you know, all of them, they're coming from the different banks, they're coming from online banks, but mainly, obviously, from the really high street and, and, and traditional banks, just simply because they have the most of the customers out there at the moment. And then there's different factors coming together. I think one is the user experience, the other one is the challenging business model, giving the, the low interest income, uh, a lot of banks now raising fees, um, because traditional ways, uh, it's very harder to earn uh, uh, money. And these things coming together brings us customer from every, customers from everywhere. But um, most of our growth is done uh, by friend referral and, and viral, virality. So I think the key to success of our product is really the product that we have built uh, to our company. Um, it's really like just people liking our product, using it every day. I mean, the people that log into our apps and, and uh, actually are, uh, are using our, our product and have an account with us on, on average log in 25 times a month. So almost every day they are within our app. And I think the big opportunity that we're having is that we, we have one of the apps that you open daily yeah. and they have a really high relevance in, in, in your, in your life. And there's not so much, so many apps that you really want to open daily that, that can have a value for you. It's, it's a couple of apps on the communication side. Maybe it's your calendar. It's, you look at the weather, maybe it's a couple of apps that you open daily, but it's not, it's not a lot. But I guess that then there's a challenge to that of, uh, I've heard people talk about banking you know, in the background, that actually does the engagement levels in banking apps, does that really signify success? Or should actually customers feel that, they're, you know, that you'll let them know when there's a problem? Um, do you want customers to come to your app that often? Or would you like more? Or if a customer only came in a couple of times a month because there was something they had to do, would that be okay? I think you have to create that relevance. And I think um, when you look at banking and everything, we, we I think banking banks in general are underselling and underestimating what they can really change for customers. Um, I think as a bank, you should be a, a solution provider in a lot of areas of your life. So we are now starting with the financial things. So we're starting with uh, investment, saving, credit, insurance. But I think you can then go beyond. You can say, okay, I have a solution for you. Um, um, you want to rent a car. Maybe, you know, I can gr- I can grant with your credit rating that you don't have to put a deposit. So very abstract. But I think um, you can go beyond banking in, 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 uh, in, in, in what we're doing. And uh, if you ask me if our main business in five years is going to be purely all the, the banking functions around it, I don't believe so. I think it's going to be revenue uh, revenues out of uh, of other revenue streams and i think the hard thing you have to get to is and i think there the traditional banks have been very bad at is you have to be the trusted partner from uh, f- for your customers the customers are willing um, um to look at when they have a problem so today i'm sure if your traditional bank will call you up um and then I think you might have the same experience that I have when my traditional bank is calling me up. I always I answer the phone because I'm I'm afraid that I have blocked some card or I'm I'm in minus somewhere and I didn't see something. Um, but then when I answer when I answer the phone, then they normally try to sell me a pension product or something. Mm. It's always the same talk. I have it once a year with my traditional <laughs> bank, and it's like a product that's completely un- irrelevant for me. Yeah. So I think to be relevant for the customer and showing the, showing the right opportunities, especially in the German market where a lot of people don't use the opportunities they would have in, in, in their financial life, be it an investment on, on the credit side, I think to show that is, is important. And we try, and there's one of the KPIs that we're looking at, we try to get people 
as often as possible into our app because we we try to to show them things around their financial life. Uh, we try to point out things uh, um, um, that are unusual in their financial life. We try to help them show them opportunities. And I think I think that's that's something that you can do. And I think it's not necessarily bad. I think it's bad for for the base services. So mm-hmm. it's it's really like if if it's just about you know doing a transfer then maybe you shouldn't look there into the app every day but um if it's if it's more things that you try to create and and you try to to create that engagement and and get people excited about the new functionalities that you have i think it's a, a good sign that people are logging into the app often i don't but, know if you can share these numbers valentin but um there's a poster outside saying 126 users in one year and i'm quite if, familiar if you can't chris has just said what outside the walls well i'm quite familiar with fedor and they got 100,000 customers in eight years so you did that in one year um they talk about onboarding uh cost of customer acquisition being about less than 20 euros per customer because it's viral word of mouth online but the other thing they say is that over 60 percent of their customers are over the age of 35 whereas you're saying yours are digital natives so you're a very different sort of bank what sort of growth and demographics of your customers have you got? so the average age with us is around 30 years so that's kind of even older than i expected i think it's mainly because we haven't really been focusing on on young customers so we have just grown we, we just said okay everybody comes and we didn't do a lot of like uh, student marketing where i think in the future our customer base is, is going to be Maybe even younger, because that's the people that is it's easy to sell the product to. It's a no-brainer for them that our product is much cooler than uh, than the traditional products. From the growth perspective, I think today we we have a little more than uh, than two hundred thousand customers. Um, we are aiming. Uh, it's always very hard to say what we're aiming for because when you would have asked me one and a half years back when we started and we launched the product, if we would have more than two hundred thousand customers now, I would say no. Yeah. So I think we have been that the, the success that we had with customers has been tremendous, and we're very happy about that. It's very hard to predict, but I would say if we if we manage to grow to a couple of million customers within the next years, I think that would be something that we're aiming for, and that we would like to do. Uh, uh, can, can I tell you that we will manage that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But there's a hundred thousand. In one year and 200,000 in 18 months. If, if, yeah, so that trajectory is a, a hockey stick. Absolutely. I think that the, the, the difficult thing is then going, you know, from maybe 200,000 customers to a million. Yeah. Just operationally, it's it's a little more effort. I, I think our systems are built for this. But I mean, you have to have customer service that you have to scale. So there's a couple of things that you have to watch. And it's always easier to, to say it's accelerated growth, but then you have to live it every day, which is uh, a little more tricky. And does Barfin force you to have a cost of, of capital that goes with that? I mean, in terms of reserves, etc., you know, all the Basel stuff. Yeah, so normally you have different, uh, um, different like uh, quality of capital that you can, or different calculation methods, like taking into account your risk weighted assets, but also how much deposits do you have and so on, your operational risk, uh, and obviously you have to take into account the growth into kind of the uh, the business plan that you have and the business plan that you're sharing also with Buffin, and you have to have the regulatory capital because it's a regulated industry, which I think makes sense because otherwise, you know, uh, people lose their money. But it's 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 also helpful, you know. It's also helpful for for a younger startup to look into, you know, financial planning closer and uh, and maybe also, you know, um, um, thinking a little bit more about the risks, what happening if, if revenue streams are not coming and so on. So it's an education that we're going through as a young startup now, maybe much more. Uh, uh, taking into account these these topics, also with extending our management team, we brought in two two experienced bankers into the team. So I think uh, that's a learning process. How well do they fit in? I mean, you've obviously chosen some bankers that rock, I guess, rather than traditional bankers. 
I think um, for, for, for these positions, we, we interviewed more than 100 people. Uh, I think it's interesting to see how many people uh, actually are frustrated in their traditional banking jobs. So we, we received a lot of applications, I would say. In the end, the challenge is if you're hiring someone for, for a managing position in a bank, to fulfill what the, the regulator wants to see, because the regulator is very strict on, on how many years you have to have experience to lead a bank and so on. Um, it's always a trade-off and it's a challenge to get people that still know how to work hands-on and are too high level, but have the, the needed experience uh, uh, to be eligible for, for that position. Um, and there, I think we have we found some some uh, some very good candidates with Marcos and Matthias who are, who are heading our bank. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, the challenge is really that you get the people, and I think in Marcus and Matthias we have found them uh, that, that really understand the business. You can still ask them, you know, you know, in a couple of months from now, we want to start a consumer credit product. How would you do the risk scoring? And they just draw something on the paper, and that's how you start. And I think really working this operational in a startup and to understand things to the bottom is is really important. And it's it's very hard to find with all the candidates we have looked at. I think for for a couple of ones, I mean. It's also understandable. I mean, if you're working in a bank with maybe 100,000 employees or maybe 50,000 employees, obviously all your reports have never worked operationally. So it's very hard to don't lose that kind of going into detail and really being to the point. You don't find many full stack bankers, do you? They're few and far between. Like if you've worked in a big bank, you've done a thing, but you haven't done all the things and you need to, to hire somebody that's done all the things by the sense of it. Well, at least kept the tools sort of sharp type thing. Yeah. You, know, you, you don't necessarily expect people to be sort of doing it all themselves in a, like say a couple hundred thousand people organization. But if they don't know how to do it still, it kind of makes you wonder how they're managing a bunch of people doing it, doesn't it? I think it's just, you know, a different, also a different skill set. Obviously, if you were if you're transforming one of the big big banks or working one of those you have to have a different skill set than building a bank with like you know from 100 employees maybe to 200 or 250 from you know 200,000 customers maybe to a couple of millions not even on the on the customer side it's not so much less but i think it's, it's really on the organization and what you have to do and i think the most important thing in banking what we have learned once we we've gotten the license is really the demystification of all these processes. So in the beginning, you know, everybody told us, are you crazy getting the banking license? I mean, still before we got the license, no one, I think we talked a lot about it a little bit, obviously not publicly because the regulator is also very sensitive to that. Um, but I think um, now that we got the license, a lot of people trust us much more because no one trusted it before that we really get the license. And it's it's really about demystification. Mm. It's really about, it's not, ta- not something that takes several years if you manage the process well obviously it's a complex process but if you if you have the right people on board that really do the things down to the bottom um i think it's it's really a process that you can manage and i think that's true for everything you do in fintech really just do things and and then you have to be really precise in doing them i mean there are a lot of great ideas and then you have to go really through like it's the the operations it's the execution i think in fintech and uh, and there we have we, we I think we with Marcos and, and Matthias we found two guys that are really good in executing uh, that have the relevant experience and extended our team with some of the the know how that we needed so I think I'm very happy so I think I'm very happy uh, so I'm really interested in the kind of these new services banking as a platform yeah. and you know everything else that can be delivered because traditionally you know banks have made money in very few ways you know net interest margin interchange lending you know it's a kind of well understood and that bit's highly regulated um, but there doesn't seem to be a sort of a regulated out for selling other people's products or connecting via APIs and getting affiliate fees 
So how would you, how do you see that working? I think you, you have to, and that's what I mentioned earlier, I think you have to create that relevance. So we're much more coming from the point, what problems can we solve for customers instead of where can we do just revenue? Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's in the end, you have to be a problem solver. And if it's a good problem that you're solving and a relevant problem, you will also be able to make revenue. I think it's it's very important that you get back this relevance. I think today banks, as I mentioned before, have the problem that if you get something recommended by one of the big banks, also in the UK, you kind of distrusting the offer. Sure. In general, yeah. It's, so it's a, it's it's not even good if there's a big banking brand on this product. It's even giving you distrust. So if the banking brand wouldn't be there, uh, we would trusting it maybe more. And I think we have to go the other way around. So we would like to to be at a stage in a year from now when people open the N26 app, that they really say that's products that N26 has looked at, that they are good products. Mm. Doesn't mean that they always have to be the cheapest. Doesn't have to be that they always, they, um, maybe the, 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 the ones that you always like the, 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 I think it should always be fair products. It's not about the price. It's about the user experience. It's about how, how can you get access to these products? How quick do they work? And I think I, I personally think that people are not not interested in researching. I think some people are, and there's a big niche, and there's still a big market. But I personally, I don't know if, I've, if I, I would like to research like for two days what's the best credit product for myself. Yeah. You know, sometimes I have to do it. Yeah. But, but I guess that's where I was getting to with the you know the the line between advice and guidance, and the fact that you might point someone to a peer to peer lender or to a pensions product yeah. or to a variety of things. And then make revenue from the back of it. Yeah. At least in the UK, we've had all kinds of problems with mis-selling and, well, Wells Fargo is a you know great example. <laughs> but And I can see that being the kind of future, the disaggregated marketplace, the the market, the yeah. platform bank that then connects you. But how, how does that bank, uh, you know, is the regulator happy with that kind of the model? I think the regulator absolutely sees that, that banking and that, that's what it is, is it's going, it's, it's unbundled. And I think bringing together this unbundling in one app makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So you have specialized players in credit, in, in insurance, in, in any, any other, other products that you can think of that are really experts in their fields. And they, they're still earning a decent margin in these fields. And, uh, and then if you use them in, in one big app or in, in one product assortment, I think that makes a lot of sense, at least for us. And I think that is also completely fair that you, that you earn revenue. Um, I think it, it's not always, the products don't always have to be f- free. It's just about the user experience. And I think a big mistake of a lot of the traditional banks was that a lot of them reduced themselves to kind of, you know, ATM fees and, uh, and, and account fees. And uh, what we have learned throughout the last half year um, is really that people are with us, not just because of the fees, but they, um, they're with us because of the the experience that they're getting with us, the you know, the, the application that they have with us. I think the key is they trust you, right? Trust is a fragile thing. And actually, it sounds to me like you've worked extremely hard not to betray the trust of your customers. And the larger banks will just, they don't mind because there's millions of you. We're going to market in enough of you and we'll convert some of you. As a smaller bank, you would rather forgo short-term profit to keep the trust over the long-term and keep that lifetime version of a customer. And I think that's a USP that people miss quite often is, is the fragility of trust and the ability to build a lifetime relationship with somebody. So you can acquire some customers now, but how many are you going to acquire over 10 years with that trust model is and something that's not been discussed. It's by doing stuff, right? So you're you're delivering a consistent experience, you're delivering consistent benefit to them rather than 
you know, pushing out a couple of million pounds worth of marketing saying you're going to do something, which is kind of where most of the traditional ones go is sort of saying, aren't we digital and how good are we type thing rather than actually doing something different and delivering a different experience, you know. But it's also about not finding them. You know, I do think that that, uh, <laughs> that helps know, too, yeah. Banks should be uh, great waiters, not bad landlords. You know, it's a very different piece when actually, you know, banks make a significant fee from unauthorized overdraft fees and, you know, big charges that are hidden in places. But I mean, on the other hand, I also have to say, and there's something we had to learn over time as well, you have a big negative selection in banking as well. So in, in the first place, if you're starting a new bank, you also get a lot of customers that weren't accepted by, any, by other banks mm-hmm. for, for good reason. Mm. And obviously, credit scoring is something very important. And also, high interest rates for someone who has a bad credit scoring are something completely normal. I think in the end is you have to have a good scoring that, that kind of gives you an overview of a person that you can deliver the products to him that are a fair price to him. And I think that's something you have to learn also if you're a young bank, uh, that, that sometimes with some customers you cannot make happy at all. That's so how do you is. manage it in, in this future platform world you talk about, especially after PSD2 comes in? So we'll be in this position where regulation, Payment Service Directive 2 says um, you have to open up transaction information of your customers and make that available to other platforms. And in theory, things like transfer wise, you know, the ability to send money abroad and, uh, you know, kind of really instantly do uh, foreign transactions, really good user experience, really well-known company. Um, you kind of, uh, you can't imagine there being many issues there, but in a future world where your APIs are open and there may be somebody using some of your APIs and or you may be exposing your customers to another company's product, how do you manage the risk side of that? And how do you keep that trust with a customer? Is, is there, are there new processes required there? Are, there? are you guys thinking that thing through? Do you think PSD2 is going to cause these sorts of problems or not? So I think PSD2, uh, a lot of people are talking about it as their whole co- consultancies, I think, around that topic. I think we really have to see um, um, how this is materializing. Yeah, so how is it really like, you know, um, in practice? I think it's not defined yet. Uh, I think it's a big opportunity, obviously, if you can share these informations, people will, will have it much easier to switch banks. And it's obviously good for us because we believe that we have the best banking experience and one of the best ones. So it's much easier to, to go over that hurdle to switch your bank account. Um, on the other hand, obviously also with us, building the platform means we have to deal with a lot of suppliers, a lot of like transfer wise in, in the background, a lot of different companies. Uh, and, and, and keeping that quality level requires you to have a really good operations team, um, really good contract team that, that negotiates the best deals for you, for your customers. Um, but I think it's manageable. I think we don't have to have like 5,000 partners on our platform, but maybe it's, you know, 30 within the next years. Maybe at one point it's 50, but I don't see us to build the next Amazon. Uh, uh, it's, it's a limited number of partners um, you can grant a, a very good experience with. And I think that's manageable to to manage that service in the end. So it's almost like there's two tiers, isn't there? There's the PSD2, if it comes, and I would happen to agree, I think it's on the never-never. You know, if this thing happens, I'd be very surprised because PSD1 never really happened. And then the, the second thing is, but, you know, there are banks out there that have started to voluntarily expose APIs and do it in really interesting ways. And then the market can create experiences around partnerships that are, that are a little bit different there. What's exciting you about what you haven't built yet that you you want to build are there any things that just or that you look in the fintech space and go why has nobody done that kind of thing i think i think um i I think there's there's a lot a lot of basic things that you can do 
Um, so I think if you look at the German market especially, I think most of the, the dimensions, credit, saving, investment, you maybe have one player, maybe you have two, but it's it's not crowded. So a lot of people say it's, it's, it's very crowded and so on. I don't think so. I think there's a couple of ideas, but really products that are out there that are live that have a great, great experience. Um, it's not so many. So I would really focus on on the big pain points. Yeah, so something like you know uh how do you invest money uh how do you how do you save money i mean there are a couple of models around interest arbitrage that i think uh, are cool but it's it's like the really big models where you, where i know that's an app i want to go to if i do any saving or any investment it's not existing in germany yet yeah um so i think we want to try to build that as n26 to be kind of the place you go with all your financial problems but they are not even now existing the ones that are below that so there's i wouldn't say i, I if you ask 100 uh, people on the street here how many investment apps they know i think they maybe wouldn't come up with any so i would really focus on on the big pain points which for me is like saving investment it's it's trading something like in the us robin hood that isn't in europe at all uh, um, which is a big big pain so that's the the smaller things that i see and then i think a couple of things for us is really thinking about how do how can you go with i think the problem that we are solving is we have the identity of customers and we have a, a payment solution and uh, in in the end every online company has the problem um, that they want to have the identity of the user because there's always some kind of risk if you do sell a product online, you don't know who it is. And you need to have a payment, which always is again with risk. And so if you have these two things, then you can go in the direction of, you know, offering maybe a, a payment button, an N26 payment button that you integrate in, a, in online stores. But I think before you do that, you have to get the significant number of customers. So that's why we are focused on getting you know, a couple of million customers, maybe more. And if you have a, a big, decent customer base, you can actually go to the other side and say, okay, I, I do something together with merchants and, and solve the problem there. So I think the the, the, the most important thing in a, in a payment or a banking company is get the relevant size. And then when you have the relevant size, either on one hand, either with the merchants or uh, with the consumers on the other hand, then really from there you can you can solve a lot more problems beyond banking, but also in 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 transaction services and so on. We were talking to, uh, to OptioPay about the same thing. Building a two sided platform at the same time is just phenomenally difficult. You know, yeah. where are you aiming for first? I guess you know having such an amazing experience over the last couple of years. Um, what are the those pearls of wisdom of advice that you would give you know new fintechs? Either things where you think you did really well and like made had started with some great assumptions or things that you wish you'd have done differently? So I think that the, the, the very difficult thing about fintech is that you can actually very hardly build an MVP. So that's the big problem about fintech because if you if, if I want to build a challenger bank and I want to have, give you the experience of testing it and maybe then I would like to you know, I, I need to get a bank partnership. I need to get a partnership with, I need to get an issuer for my card. And it takes a year and then you have an MVP and then you realize it's, it's maybe something no one wants to use. So I think this way from having an idea that maybe sound great to really proving that on the market to, to kind of going past the MVP is very expensive in fintech. And, uh, when I would do something different now, looking back, we started out with like a, a prepaid card for teenagers, very similar to, to OSPA in the UK. Mm-hmm. And we just realized uh, we worked a year very hard and we just realized 
most of our clients weren't the kids we designed the product for, but the parents, which like to use the product for themselves because they just like the real-time experience. They like that they saw get a, got a push notification for every transaction. And then we just realized um, maybe we should do a bigger thing. Maybe we should build a bank. And, uh, and I think realizing this, you know, uh, uh, took us 12 months. Um, I would say we could have realized that earlier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cost us a little bit of delusion. Uh, and, uh, and, but I think it's really the, the advice that I would give is really think about the product that you're doing and think about, is there really a need that is, that is, that is solved and think about also what's the margin in this business. So where do you really earn money? Um, um, and is it a sustainable model behind? I think that's kind of the questions that you easily can answer in, in the beginning. And then, because if these things are wrong and you're still working really hard on the product and a lot of people use the product and like it, and then you're not successful, it's, 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 it's still like a, a hard thing to take. Yeah? So I think really looking at the product, trying to do some kind of MVP, don't talk to friends about it. Talk to people that don't know you. Um, so really straightforward. Like you can read that in a lot of books about how to build a minimum viable product. I would really go exactly that direction. And in fintech, it's just much harder. But then in, in going back to that sort of, you know, the unit economics of yeah. each additional uh, customer, there seem to be a lot of fintechs that are really actually burning VC money in order to to bring new customers in, hoping that at some point they manage to turn that into a, a profitable platform. Um, is is that not the other way? You know that that people are actually doing it. I think yeah, there's a fundamental uh, uh, misalignment sometimes between investors and a sustainable company building. Um, I think you have to be very focused on building a sustainable company, uh, and I think it's growth. Obviously, I think it also for us. I think for us, it's in, our company is going to be successful if we manage to get a couple of million customers. If we stay with, you know, 200,000 customers over the next 10 years, we're not going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so growth is fundamental to that. The question is, um, um, what's the long-term perspective? So for our company, it's very clear. We want to be the the, the, the the fintech solution for all your problems. Uh, log in and you, you get a credit, you get everything. Um, for other companies, I think it's it's much less sustainable. Um, um, and I think every founder has to look at his business plan and, and see how it works out. I think building on a hypothesis that you can raise more money uh, and, and, and and have a high valuation in, in 12 months from now than even now, I think especially within the last one, one and a half years, got much more difficult. Uh, but then at some point, it's also uh, just the best ones survive and the ones that have a sustainable model. I think sometimes it just takes longer. Uh, sometimes you can go maybe uh, seed series A, Series B maybe gets difficult, and then Series C is knockout. So I think uh, it's just sometimes you get, get go a little longer, but at some point you really have to have a model where you exactly know where you want to go, which revenues you want to do. And in the end, and everything we are doing is, is for the customer, but in the end you can just do great things for the customer if you have a sustainable model. And I think that's what you, what you have to focus on. I know we've asked a lot of questions, but I've just got two last quick ones, which are, um, you know, we're in Berlin and I kind of wonder why Berlin, N26 rather than Frankfurt or London, for example. I think in the beginning, we very much thought about going to London or, or Berlin. I think uh, Frankfurt was never an option for us. So I think it's for us also, we we obviously need a couple of bankers, but it's not that we need, to, need a, a huge amount of, of bankers. I think the bankers of the futures are programmers and uh, designers and developers and uh and therefore, I think it's much, much better to be in a place where you get these people and the best people there. And that's obviously in Germany, it's Berlin, uh, in, 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 in the UK, 
Uh, it's a little more connected because London is also like banking and it's 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 a startup hub. Uh, I think now with the Brexit discussion, I think it's it's even more obvious why why we are in Berlin. But I think still London is a great place to be. So um, also for our, for us, and we get a lot of talent from London now. It's just about you know I think it's not about Frankfurt. I think it's not about where the old banks are. I always say it's even better for us if we are further away from from the traditional. Uh, players on the market and just as you mentioned brexit what do you think the impact of brexit will be first of all i think the impact is much smaller than than what you have seen uh, uh on, on the markets and the reaction so if you uh, i think i think they, they, they there will be some impact i think it's it's taking forever uh there's obviously impact on on the financial markets on financing uh immediately I cannot imagine that there is going to be a big difference. So I, I, I don't see that that uh, that is going to be difficult for me, for example, to travel to the UK or people from the UK working here. So I think that's and so London okay. as a fintech center is still going to be yeah. Tra- I, I even cannot imagine that we need a new banking license for the UK market, but we'll we'll see. I mean, no one imagined or not many people imagined the Brexit to happen. So I don't know. Yeah, um, I think obviously it's not good for Europe. It's not good for for the startup scene and community. I think it's shrinking our market. And I think uh, what what most people um, don't see is that the European Union is a is a whole project that's going beyond just business and economics. So I think it's it's a project that we where we can live in peace. And uh, I mean, if you look at uh, last time I looked at where you know if you travel around the world, you see and you look just at the at at, at all the the whole map and you and and you see how many how many areas of the world are very unstable. I think then this is what, what Europe has to do in the first place. And that doesn't mean I, I agree with a lot of overhead in, in, in Brussels. But um, I think that's that's you shouldn't forget. And uh, I think for, for me as a true European, uh, having a European life, I, I think I'm very happy that we're still part of the European Union as, as Germany. And I'm Austrian from, from origin, so... Um, so um, I think that brings us neatly to um, finishing up our, our interview. But uh, we, we do have quite a lot of German listeners on Fintech Insider. So thank you, everyone, for, for listening across uh, Germany. But where can people find out more about N26 and how do they get in touch? So, I mean, we have a website at n26.com where you get actually hopefully everything about our, our product. You can just simply download our app on the App Store, iOS, Android. Um, and then uh, we have a great customer service. Yeah, if you really want to call, you can also call us. <laughs> but I would, I, I hopefully our our app and our website is self-explanatory. So, um, and there would be some people that would kill me in the UK for not asking when are you coming to the UK. <laughs> um, I think the final decision on the UK uh, will be taken uh, uh, in in the end of this year. So I, I hope to be in the UK uh, first first half year next year. That's amazing, uh, Valentin. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And we're here with the co-founder of OptioPay, Oliver, uh, continuing our Berlin Marathon. So, uh, Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me and glad that you're all here. Thank you. It's, it's, uh, we've only been in Berlin a short while, but we're already seeing some of the sights and our good friends at Solaris is showing us around and making us feel very, very at home. And, uh, I'm sure when the beers come out, we'll, uh, we'll be sharing some fun later, but. <laughs> For now, we're going to get to the serious business of podcasting, um, if we can call it that. Um, and I wanted to ask you a question. I wanted to start with, um, what led you to create OptioPay, you crazy man? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, what led me to OptiPay? So uh, before OptiPay, I founded several companies in Gibraltar. So um, I was part of the management team of a company called Etruvian, which was basically an incubator founded by the founders of PokerStrategy.com. And we were kind of focusing on very different business models, mostly affiliate business models, building uh, a trading school, building a casino and poker school, as well as building a chess school. During that time, we, of course, came in touch with payments as well. And um, after my after selling my own business to, to Israel, I came back to Berlin, sat down with a friend, Marcus, who's also founder of Optipay. And he told me about this feature they released uh, with his kind of former company, Rebuy, which is a big marketplace. And they said, okay, we had kind of the liquidity situation that every time we bought something, it was uh, within our storage. And until we sold it, kind of the liquidity was away. So they decided to offer higher value gift cards to um, their customers as a payout option. And surprisingly, it converted quite nicely with 9%. And um, when he told me that, we were actually quite surprised because every time you talk about payments, you talk about how to get the money from your customer's pocket into your business's pocket, but you don't really think about how to monetize and how to use payouts in a smart way. Uh, so we decided to build OptiPay, build a company, a software as a service company, uh, based kind of on the goal of uh, building the most beneficial payout system for uh, consumers and uh, companies that send out money, basically. So your target customer then is is a small company, is a merchant, is an online company. Like who's your who's your ideal customer? So we are basically an infrastructure or ecosystem. So we have three customers. Uh, we usually draw it in a triangle where we have the recipient, so the person that receives the money on top. Uh, then we have a co- the so-called issuer. I know it's the wrong word for you guys, but the company that sends out money uh, within that triangle. And we also have advertisers within that tri- triangle, so uh, the company that basically gives out the gift card. Those are our three target customers. Of course, right now we are very much focusing on enterprise clients that pay out very large sums of money uh, to consumers, um, mostly insurance companies. Uh, so the market there in Germany alone is 209 billion euros that are sent out each year uh, to consumers, but also energy companies, for example. So in Germany, you prepay your energy bill and after a year, you uh, get some money back. And usually, since energy companies are selling a commodity, they always try to give you something back. So have a good experience and you don't look for a different energy company. So there's also 40 million households in Germany that receive roughly 200 euros back each year. Those are funds that we try and that we will channel through our system. And um, we try to get um, more issues from different industries. So one of our customers, Lufthansa, for example, uh, we process delayed flight payments and lost luggage payments as well. Uh, same situation, a lot of money going out to consumers. Uh, we try to help Lufthansa to actually make the experience better, but also to uh, kind of monetize on their payouts in that sense. And is Optio Pay just in Germany or are you looking at the whole of Europe or globally? We are looking on the whole of Europe. So uh, our system is built on Ebix and SIPA. So wherever companies use Ebix and SIPA, uh, we can operate. 
And actually, we have a quite nice effect since we are selling to very large enterprises. We are right now pushing into the market in Germany, but our clients that we currently have are pulling us to the other European markets because, of course, the Lufthansa says, yeah, thanks for transferring the money to our German clients. But we also have clients in Spain and Italy and the UK that have delayed flights. Uh, so actually scaling the business in the EBIX area is uh, easy for us. So I guess I'm fascinated by the by multi-sided platforms and especially how you grow them. You know, it's hard enough when you've got just one customer set to mm. to go after. You have three, um, and you know that's notoriously difficult. On how do you grow all of those simultaneously? Can you? Oh, you've obviously been successful. How did how did that grow? So to be honest, in the beginning, we were quite arrogant and said that the market will love our product and will sell to the very, very large enterprise we can find. So our first two customers were DAX 30 companies in Germany. Um, and we actually succeeded with that because we could, yeah, talk to the advertisers and tell them, okay, the moment in which people receive money is a very, very valuable moment. And you should advertise in that moment and try to get people not while they're waiting for the bus or while they're waiting for the tube, but you should get them while they have money. We only get recipients that actually have money in that moment. And um, since it is a performance marketing channel, it's actually a very nice way for, for advertisers to kind of calculate their acquisition costs, their return on investment on the customer as well. And um, getting large enterprises was actually the very big challenge. Um, as you can imagine, uh, the regulatory barriers for insurance companies are quite high. Uh, trying to get a startup uh, into uh, kind of the um, yeah, disbursement system of an insurance company uh, is quite difficult. But from the beginning, we had very strong partners like PwC who helped us to set up the business in a way that from a data privacy and data security standpoint, as well as from a regulatory standpoint, uh, we could manage to sell to very large clients. Did you have to get a regulatory license from Baffin or something? Or No. 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 So the way we did it, and that was also kind of helping the sales process, uh, we, in the very beginning, were supported by Commerzbank uh, okay. in Germany. So they have an investment fund called the Mine Incubator. Uh, the main goal of the Mine Incubator is to find businesses that can potentially help the core business of Commerzbank. And one of the strongest part is their uh, corporate clients. And they basically have a 100% kind of saturation within the German market. Either they're... Either the companies are clients or they know the, the companies and the chief treasurer or whoever uh, they want to talk to. And um, it was really nice for us because on every slide that we made, we could put the Commerzbank logo and we were introduced by Commerzbank. And uh, we are also using them in terms of infrastructure. It's a very large banks. I, I worked in a corporate banking division for a little while and they always struggle with low value payments from large businesses to consumers. But actually, from a consumer standpoint, getting that moment of refund or that gift card can be a moment that you can really build a relationship with your customer to say sorry for a flight delay, to say we'd like to retain you for another year as an energy customer, can really delight your customer if you do it right. And if you're anything like David and that comes as an Amazon card, then you'll just be happy as can be. That'll be spent in seconds, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm quite surprised though, like oh, our energy companies don't give us anything other than big bills, do they, in the UK? So this is uh, quite an interesting... Uh, they should be talking more to Optiopay, although most of them are now owned by either German or French companies. So yeah. this is well, there's an opportunity. Right? Uh, there you go. Just keep keep spreading our way. We need we need you. And, and speaking <laughs> of of spreading, um, how 
how big are you guys now? Like, what's the size of the company? Which markets are you operating in? So, so far, we have raised roughly 8 million euros uh, from, from super angels as well as the mine incubator. So, Commerzbank, uh, Dieter von Holzbrink Ventures, uh, so various investors. Uh, we are currently 53 people here in Germany. We are currently operating in Germany in terms that we have live customers in Germany. But of course, we are already in very advanced kind of in very advanced sales process and going kind of through the contract basis with international clients as well. As you can imagine, our sales process is in between eight to 18 months. Um, so we started very early internationalizing in that sense. What do you wish you'd have done differently looking back? Having a very good product manager earlier. So kind of, we have a very, very strong business side, sales side, very strong CTO, uh, but combining both is a very, very important challenge. And um, we uh, yeah learned that the hard way again, to be honest. So yeah, that was a learning that we kind of uh, made and that we implemented already one and a half years ago because we kind of felt the need that drawing features on a paper and just handing them to IT uh, won't, won't work necessarily. Jason and I were talking about this on the flight over here, that finding a good product manager is so, so crucial to stitching everything together because they do a bit of everything and they have to understand kind of a bit of everything and be a bit of everywhere. But there's not one thing they do. And, and how do you make a product manager? How does somebody become a product manager is an interesting question because they all have these like storied journeys where they've worked in 15 different jobs. Yeah, it's, kind of- it's a bit like um, someone saying, how do I become a CEO? You know, they do call product managers CEOs of, of their product. Where, where did your product manager come from? What was their background? So uh, to be honest, our product manager came from PayPal back in the days. So he's American, worked for PayPal, uh, worked in Germany for a different startup and a uh, very experienced uh, product guy. So if you've got any stories about um, you know end customers kind of receiving a gift card, having a delighted moment, because I can imagine there's some some in there where there's that moment of getting the gift card. Oh, I was delayed and I went and bought this thing and now it's become a present for my kids on the way home. Um, you know, David's often out on planes and has to make it up to, to various family members. I'm sure he, he will end up with it. <laughs> Oh, that would be good, yeah. yeah. Uh, like amassing cards on the basis of delayed flights would be a good thing to do. It's like a, a like a weird savings account for me. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah, and due to the like very um, special moment where we offer gift cards, uh, the offerings that we have uh, are exceptionally good. So these are usually exclusive deals. We give, I don't know, a 10% discount on an iPhone or something, things you don't get kind of in the real world. But to be honest, so what we are saying is we are building the most beneficial payout system. Uh, the gift card itself is just one solution to the hypothesis that we can do that. Uh, so right now we're integrating different services like Batsan, also startup here uh, from Berlin, uh, which offers you uh, to pick up your money right away from supermarket. Uh, so speed can also be of benefit for the customers, especially when you have a lost luggage case. So kind of waiting for the money for four days of the bank transfer, and maybe you're not interested in an Amazon voucher, but you want to have the money right now. Uh, so we are really kind of thinking of the payout ecosystem in a broader way of offering investment opportunities. Maybe you don't want to put it into consumption. Maybe you want to put it into a fund or in a crowd investing platform. Uh, maybe you want to, I don't know, do a Forex transaction. Maybe you get the money in euros, but you want to get it in pounds. 
uh, all those kind of opportunities are there for us to um, kind of uh, kind of use and, and materialize. Just building on Jason's earlier comment about scaling with so many different issues. Um, people involved, you know, you mentioned DAX 30 companies and Commerce Bank, but how do you deal with the partnership system? Because it, it is a, a partnering ecosystem that you're living in. So is the product manager looking after that or how do you deal with all these different relationships? Right. That's a good question. So in terms of how do we do deal with those relationships? So uh, from the payout perspective, we have a very, very close key account management as you can imagine, the people talking to Lufthansa, they have been talking to them for the past 12 to 18 months. So they have very, very close relationships. Uh, so we always try to keep those relationships, especially because we are usually scaling within the company. So upselling for us is a very important thing. An insurance company starts usually with, I don't know, I have a dropped phone insurance or a stolen bike insurance, but there are I don't know, a tremendous amount of more payout cases, which are just somewhere in this large organization. Uh, so we are building relationships to the CEOs and to the different kind of uh, leaders within the companies to actually scale within kind of the large corporations as well. Um, from an advertiser perspective, we have a partner management here. Um, so we are kind of very closely managing our advertisers, offering them the right reports, offering the right kind of opportunities, saying, okay, now we have, uh, I don't know, Lufthansa going live. Uh, don't you want to advertise a special campaign because you're offering suitcases? And uh, kind of all those opportunities are managed through a central partner manager. Quite creative. Um, so you're really coming up with um, advertising opportunities on behalf of the advertisers based on some of the corporates that you're bringing in. It's quite a, that, so that, that's a real value add, right? I mean, it's not just here's some gift cards. It's here's some gift cards and a f- clever way to put them in the hands of people. So when, when kind of we talk to a bike retailer, uh, we ask him, like, what is your favorite customer? They usually say somebody wants a bike. And we say, okay, no, uh, your favorite customer is somebody who wants a bike, who has just st- lost their bike or the bike was just stolen and who have just received money from their insurance company. Uh, that's the best customer. And we have access to this customer. We own the channel. And um, this is the same story that we tell the suitcase companies. Uh, who's your best customer? The person who's just lost the suitcase. That's that's. Fantastic. I, I like that story. Um, so, um, and since we're sitting in the heart of Berlin, we can see the river from here. We're right by the wall. Um, great office location you have here. Tell us a little bit about what made you choose Berlin. You said you were operating in Jersey, was it before? And then Georgia, Georgia sorry. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of set the company up here. You've got um, now 53 people working for you. You've got access to great companies. How are you finding that? How's the journey been? I mean, Berlin is great. Berlin is a fantastic city. It's, it's cheap. It's, it has great talent. Um, and most importantly, you don't need to speak German to live here. So it's basically, in a very, very positive sense, impossible to leave your house and not hear three languages uh, by the way you, you kind of get to work. And that's kind of what makes Berlin so fascinating and kind of so easy um, uh, kind of to live here and to, um, to establish a business here as well. So right now we already have 90 nationalities here in the company, uh, because we hire internationally. We're looking for the best uh, talent globally. 53 staff and 19 nationalities. Yes. Yeah. And, um, it's super easy for us to kind of convince people, uh, you know, to come to Berlin. 
because they've all heard of Berlin. Berlin is, of course, a bit uh, trendy right now. But also, you know, for me as a founder, it's easy to kind of also believe in them having a good time here for two or three or four years, because I know that kind of the ecosystem, the surrounding and the people they will meet are interesting people, are people that speak their language and uh, also kind of have the right mindset. Uh, which makes it very comfortable. For we often talk about fintech in London uh, and the adjacency between the financial community and the technology community. So you'd think fintech in Germany would be in Frankfurt, but I think it's in Berlin because of rocket internet and the whole technology scene here. Could that, and that the way that grew? Or, would that be right? Yeah. So very often we have this discussion whether kind of Frankfurt or Berlin is kind of the capital of fintech. Um, uh, kind of as a founder, I don't really care too much. We are very often in Frankfurt to have our investors in Frankfurt. Would I open my startup in Frankfurt? No, never. Why? Because Berlin is just startup capital of, um, and now controversial Europe. Um, um, <laughs> and um, we find perfect talent here. Um, there's a very, very good ecosystem. Most of the kind of venture capital firms are here. And also most of the uh, corporates have innovation hubs, labs, um, you name it, uh, here in Berlin, which also kind of makes the time right to be here. Because also, you know, in the back in the days when you were looking for uh, a relationship or connection to a large corporate, it was very, very difficult to do so. Uh, right now, it's quite easy because all of them have a team here in Berlin and you are super easily invited to those meetings, talk to them. And once every three months, the CEO of every large insurance company does a very trendy startup tour, sits here on the bench press and uh, listens to the pitch. Uh, which kind of makes it easy for us um, to be here in Berlin. It's like they're trying to buy from you almost. It's I'm just imagining the CEOs lifting these weights. It'd be quite yeah. exciting. Yeah. I, I see some sort of competition coming quite soon. There's a literally a bench press behind us type thing. There's like a, a one max rep thing going on, right? <laughs> who's the most buff German CEO? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. probably an interesting one. Who, who's done the best rep? Yeah, and in fact, you could have a little board on the wall and you, could put, good. you could put the companies and what they've done. That, oh my God, that, that would be Top Gear, wouldn't it? It would. Yeah. It's a Top Gear moment. It's a top game moment. So I think there's a limit how much we can push them out of their comfort zone. We already have the bench press and a dog in the office. <laughs> that's, that's essential. So I, I was going to ask, obviously, Berlin, a vibrant fintech city. What do you see coming along? Or what, are you, uh, what companies are arising uh, and, and in what fields? That's a difficult question. Um, of course, for us, since we are right now in a very much growth phase, we are very much focusing on ourselves, uh, to be honest, um, and kind of focusing on growing here. And we have our own challenges. And of course, uh, we are very much in touch with the other founders of the other startups, um, uh, just because the fintech scene is in itself quite broad, but the people who do it are usually the same people. So who um, who's rising? I mean, of course, later on, I think you will talk to Valentin at number 26, which is a very, very interesting uh, company. Also, I think a challenger bank, uh, a term which is quite funny because we see ourselves rather in cooperation with the banks and the insurance companies, 
building kind of on their infrastructure, uh, whereas some other companies are trying to build services next to the bank and actually try to challenge them. Um, so there's kind of also this difference in the, in the ecosystem. But um, fintech itself is nothing new, I would say. So, I mean, in the past 10 years, we have seen very, very good companies in Germany from PayOne being in the north of Germany to Computop being in the south of Germany in very tiny cities, building great uh, payment service providers, building great services. So this is nothing that just came up, but is something that uh, was here and is here to stay. It's interesting you mentioned you know, N26, who have obviously just been through a licensing process. How are you regulated or how do you interact with regulators? We decided to very much use the infrastructure of uh, established banks in this sense, Commerzbank and BIW Bank. Uh, why did we decide to do it? Doing the regulation right now does not help us prove our business and kind of that we can monetize payouts and make payouts more beneficial. Uh, right now, it doesn't. Using the uh, infrastructure and kind of the regulatory roof of large corporate banks, on the other side, helps us because it gives a lot of trust to um, the insurance clients and our enterprise clients. We're not kind of in the consumer business so much in terms of kind of banking, uh, but we are very much in the enterprise business. And of course, uh, transferring millions and millions of euros for a large uh, uh, DAX 30 company is uh, or needs a certain infrastructure. And uh, we could prove that um, we are very good in combining the disbursement world with the ad tech advertising world and dealing with all the complexity, also regulatory complexity, data privacy complexity that happens kind of in between uh, by using those different infrastructures. So Oliver, um, tremendous interview. Um, where can people learn a little bit more about OptioPay? Where can they find out about you? Cool. Nice question. Um, <laughs> www.optiopay.com is our website. We also have a Twitter channel. And um, I think those are the best uh, kind of sources to learn about us. There we also have a job page. So uh, we are always looking for great team members with great experience. Uh, this is one kind of, of the biggest challenges. Getting money is right now easier than getting great talent. Uh, so, yeah, it would be great to get in touch. And just a final question for me. What's your view on Brexit? What's my view on Brexit? So, to be honest, uh, I'm not so well informed to give a smart answer here. That's okay. Um, so I'm interested from... I was a, shocked. A, a I was actually in, on a flight from here to Shanghai. And since there's no um, TV transmission as soon as you enter China, uh, before we entered it, we thought everything was fine uh, because all the poles were fine. And then we landed and there was like a weird sound going through the whole airplane when people kind of figured that Brexit actually happened and uh, I, I never experienced something like that. That was a weird moment. Um, what do I think about it? I believe that uh, Brexit wasn't a smart idea. I believe that uh, uh, unity in diversity or European claim is something that I personally uh, value very, very much. And I believe from a business point of view, we have a better chance in global competition when we are together and when we negotiate together. Um, so from an economic standpoint, uh, then trying to separate countries. Um, I don't know, Germany having 80 million, the Nordics 26 million. This is tiny compared to uh, India, China, of course. Um, so I'm a bit frustrated about it, definitely. But Many of us are too. Mm -hmm. 
I think so too. Oliver from Optiope, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. So that's all we've got time for this week. A big thanks again to all of our guests from Solaris, uh, number 26, and Optiope. And a big shout out to Marco and Philip especially, and Janaid over at Solaris for being great hosts and showing us all around Berlin. We hope to be back soon. What an amazing city. Thanks, everyone. And until next week, this has been Fintech Insider.